בשם השם נעשה ונצליח, שיעור תורה, ברוכים הבאים. Thank you everybody for coming for our uh, next חיזוק event, בעזרת השם, today we'll get a little more חיזוק, sanctify הקדוש ברוך הוא's name, בעזרת השם. Uh, tonight's שיעור is uh, sponsored by uh, and very appreciative uh, to uh, David Diamond's 1963, Global Gold and Silver, and בעזרת השם the שיעור will be for a רפואה שלמה for רבנית לבנה בת שרה, רב אפרים בן שולמית, רבנית שרה בת ענת, אבי מורי דוד בן עשריה, אמי מורתי דוריס בת ז'ורה, and also for הצלחה רבה for מרשה בת ג'ולי, איילה בת מרשה, סמיו בן מרשה, ספס בן מרשה, אלכסנדר בן מרשה, לואיס בן מרשה, and all of עם ישראל and all the righteous Noahites that continue to support the work that we do, ברוך השם, continue to learn our שיעורים, and uh, really the most important thing aside from learning our שיעורים is to share them. Uh, some people have uh, the uh, ability to watch, but not to share. So we always have to remind people to share. It only costs you your finger for two seconds. So share the shiurim, because uh, for better or for worse, unfortunately, there's not many like them. And uh, you'll see tonight, there's a lot of uh, interesting things that uh, you see in the world that's happening right now that uh, not only apply to our day-to-day -day life, but mamash, it's things that HaKadosh Baruch Hu already talked to us about in the Torah time and time again, if we only uh, paid attention. You know, on the way here, I saw, uh, you know, on I-95, there was uh, different uh, billboards. Usually I don't really look at billboards, but today apparently I had to look at billboards. So the first one, uh, right when I got off the, uh, on the exit on I-95, it says, it's okay to be gay. That's the first billboard that I saw. Okay? Right after, uh, right after the, the very next uh, uh, billboard, um, it uh, says that uh, we have uh, a gun show in Florida. A gun show. That's the next billboard. The very next bi billboard after that, it says, 411 pain. If you have pain, 411 pain. Call 411 pain. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, this, is, this is the type of stuff that's out there. It's really giving you some type of an indication of what's happening, uh, what's happening in the world. You know, you have these uh, shootings happening uh, on an average of once a week here in America, in Western society, the so-called civilized world. Uh, they're, they're murdering people um, like... Uh, you know, like, like cockroaches. They're not, uh, they're not treating people like people. People are not acting like people. And uh, people are asking a question, how could this be? You know, so some people are saying there should be gun control. Uh, the truth is the gun control is not going to help you because there's other countries out there that have much less gun control uh, than you have here in the States. But you don't see young people walking into uh, schools or... Uh, uh, mailing centers and uh, different corporations and malls and shoot people. You know, it's in, in Eretz Israel, you have a lot of terrorists, but you don't see the Jews themselves go, uh, you know, act like the Arabs or act like some of the terrorists here in America and start shooting people for no reason. Baruch Hashem, we haven't fallen that far. Uh, but uh, nonetheless, you see that here in, uh, that there's an issue. There's an issue uh, where people have uh, simply lost their mind and uh, you ask yourself, what's, going, what's wrong? What's wrong with the water? And why is it happening here? And it's not something that just started now. It's already been going on for years. I remember already from um, I mean, 20 years ago, we had a Columbine shooting. 
which back then was uh, considered a, uh, you know, a traumatizing tragedy unlike any other. Uh, you had, you know, in, in Colorado, you had a shooting. These couple of kids came in there and started uh, killing people. Uh, and that was the, uh, really a big tragedy in America. Today, you know, it's, you see a shooting today. It's on the news today. Maybe it's going to hit the news tomorrow. Three days from now, the world forgot about it. The world forgot about it. Nobody, the people that, that, is, that are suffering because they lost a loved one, they're never going to forget about it. But the rest of the world forgot about it. Why? They're busy with possibly the next one, Hashem Ishmael. Because there's another one. You had Buffalo, you had this one. You know, it keeps happening. So you have a lot of these things happening in the world. So that's the second billboard. The first billboard, I don't really have to explain about this okay to be gay thing where uh, homosexuality has always existed in the world. See, uh, the Zohar Kadosh says that uh, one of the uh, principal reasons of why Kadosh Baruch Hu destroyed the world at the time of Noah and even brought a uh, semi-mabul uh, tsunami that killed a third of the world before the mabul itself uh, was because of homosexuality. Uh, running rampant, but not just homosexuality, but rather because homosexuality became a acceptable behavior to the extent where they started writing ketubot, like a legal marriage between man and man and woman and woman. And when you kasher the, uh, the filth, when you kasher the pig, that's just something that HaKadosh Baruch Hu can't, uh, can't live with. Doing something wrong is one thing. To make that wrong right in the eyes of people, that's something that's completely out of the question. Uh, so HaKadosh Baruch Hu destroyed the world because of homosexuality back at the time of Noah. The, uh, the final straw was the fact that people were stealing, but the biggest thing that led to the homosexuality, that began the whole homosexuality, is the fact that people were promiscuous with themselves, with others, wasting seed, and so on, that we've talked about many times. And unfortunately, not much has changed since then. Uh, not much has changed since then. Uh, you had Sodom and Gomorrah, you had Egypt, uh, you had the Canaanim, and uh, of course you have uh, you know, all of the filth that's happened over the last couple thousand years. Needless to say, what's happening in the world today where the people that are considered to have a mum, they, they're considered to have a spiritual defect, are proud of it and they have marches. Uh, they're considered to have a spiritual defect, but they're actually proud of their spiritual defect. It's, 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 it's completely bizarre. You know, it's, a, uh, it's, it's, it's something that uh, uh, is unlike any other time other than the time of Noah, so much so that they're pulling billboards. And uh, if this was only in the world of the Goin, I most likely wouldn't even mention it. Uh, because the Goim are already known to be involved in this filth already from uh, the time of the Knaanim. One of the reasons the Knaanim lost their right to live in Israel is because they committed this filth according to the Psukim. HaKadosh Baruch Hu says, you know, all the, the uh, parashat discusses all of the Gilu'i Arayot sins. says, don't do all of these sins with your sister, with your brother, the things that we talked about last month. Why? Because this is what the Kna'anim were doing. That's why they lost their right to, uh, to live there. So this is already inbred in people that act like animals uh, are going are gonna to be animals. But... Uh, if this was only there, we wouldn't mention it, but it's not. It's not only there. Unfortunately, you have so-called Jewish organizations that uh, consider themselves even Orthodox that uh, are uh, promoting this filth. 
Uh, and uh, hence the reason why you have, uh, you know, uh, billboards that say it's okay to be gay. Uh, and uh, it's not just talking about the Gentiles. And you have different organizations that uh, even have synagogues and sefer Torahs and rabbis uh, that think it's not only perfectly fine, but uh, it's, a, it's, it's shame on you for speaking against it. God spoke against it. No, he didn't mean it. He didn't mean it. That's, that's, that's the, the bizarre things they write about it. Loba Shamaimi, that, uh, that their Torah is not from Shamaim. But again, the, the, the pig became perfectly kosher in their eyes. Uh, and then you look at the third billboard and you see this 411 pain. And you see the rest of society is living in agony. Some are living in pain where we've never had so many people have chronic pain. The type of pain that I've been suffering from for the last 16, 17 years is not so unique anymore. Many people have their own types of pain with no cure, no diagnosis, no idea. And if it's not chronic physical pain, emotional pain is practically standard. If you want to send your kid to a decent school, a decent yeshiva, if your kid is not a robot, the teachers are going to recommend some type of Ritalin or some type of drug to simply numb him because they simply don't want to hear him talk. And this has become standard. You know, many parents call me crying, telling me, listen, they're, they're telling me that unless I give my kid this Ritalin, uh, they're going to throw him out of yeshiva. They're going to throw him out of seminary. I say, why? Is something wrong with your kid? I've seen your kid before. They look relatively normal. It's like, yeah, they are normal, but, you know, once in a while, you know, he, he's a kid. I said, okay, well, tell the, uh, tell the teacher. Maybe he should take Ritalin. Perhaps it's going to solve the problem better than all the kids taking Ritalin. But, again, this is, not a, this is, this is a, uh, an issue, uh, you know, that has become standard to give kids drugs uh, in order to calm them down has become standard. I have teachers that teach, uh, you know, students that are teachers in public schools. They tell me that. The, uh, the, the staff in these schools is proud and excited about the fact that right before work, they each discuss what pill they took or how much alcohol they drank just to numb the pain because they have to deal with the kids. I always ask myself, if you don't want to be a teacher, then why are you a teacher? It's not like you're making so much money. You know, why be a teacher if you have to drink alcohol before you go to work at 7 o'clock in the morning? Why be a teacher if you're taking drugs just so you can deal with the kids? You don't want to be a teacher. Go, I don't know, go be a farmer. Go be, I don't know, a pilot. Go smash your head against the wall a few times. Do something else. Just don't be a teacher if you have to take alcohol. One of the things, the I, I, personal uh, things that I saw that was one of the biggest tragedies uh, that I saw from people that grew up in my generation is that I saw that one of the kids that uh, is no longer a kid now, he's in his 40s, that was the biggest mess in the world, the biggest drug addict, the biggest degenerate, the, the biggest criminal. Literally, this guy should be in jail forever. He is now a teacher in high school, and he hasn't changed a bit. So it's not like you say, oh, yeah, maybe he changed a good guy now. No, no, he hasn't changed a bit. He smokes with his students, and he, and he hangs out with his students. Like, like, like he's still in high school, and this guy became a teacher. So you see that society is suffering a lot. People are in constant depression. There is a lot of anxiety. You know, the, your average person doesn't know what's going to happen tomorrow, and they're worried about it. You have, uh, you know, the every second speech, especially in Eretz Israel, 
there are groups of people that are talking about this conspiracy of how Bill Gates is going to destroy the world and Big Pharma is destroying the world and the president is destroying the world and everyone's destroying the world and there's a conspiracy and Corona is going to kill you and the vaccine is going to kill you and everyone's going to kill you and there's the new world order and all these conspiracies and you, literally it's hard to find a shield Torah. Hard to find a shield Torah. You're hard to find somebody that talks some sense. And tell you, yeah, but the scientists are saying it. Yeah, but the scientists always say something. If they don't say something, they'll be out of a job. Why are you a rabbi speaking about science? Why are you a rabbi speaking about some conspiracy theories? Okay, you want to talk about it once, fine. Twice, fine. 300 lectures in a row, you're speaking about conspiracy theories? And this is popular. You go to one of our lectures, Baruch Hashem, we have over 50,000 subscribers now between the different channels, we're popular, we're good, a lot of people watch all over the world, average lecture, few thousand watches. You see one of these people that no one has ever heard of in his life mention anything about these conspiracies, 300,000, 200,000 views. Even if he can't one plus one together and just say ABC in order, still you'll have these views. Why people are looking for that? Because they themselves are afraid of all of these new world orders and these conspiracies and the unknown. Yet, we never have time to study what is known that's in our holy Torah. So, while we're all struggling without Torah, perhaps it's time for all of us to run away from all of the things that are antithetical to the Torah. And see how many solutions, how many solutions, how many blessings Yishtabach Shimola the Kadosh Baruch Hu gave us before he told us about the curses. In this week's parasha, HaKadosh Baruch Hu Bechvodo Be'atzmo, him himself said these blessings and him himself said these curses. Parashat Kitavo, Moshe Rabbeinu wrote, Moshe Rabbeinu said the curses. There's a significant difference between the two because HaKadosh Baruch Hu is our God, but He's also our Father. And before He said these horrible, horrific curses that may you never know and may you never see. And unfortunately today, most people don't know, but they do see them in their lives. Diseases that never existed. Things that HaKadosh Baruch Hu specifically promised will happen are happening and people, well, why did this happen? Why is there a monkey virus now? Predominantly on homosexual people. I don't know. Maybe for the same reason that AIDS came 40 years ago. Predominantly on homosexual people. People are asking dumb questions if you know a little bit of Torah. You don't even need to be a Tamil Chacham. You know a little bit of Torah. You just read the, you read the Chumash. With Rashi, you, uh, you know everything that's going on in the world right now. It's all written in the Torah. People ask, oh, there's a new virus, we're scared of it. It's a, once somebody has it, there's already uh, over 100 people infected with it. It's a monkey virus. Would you think God went to sleep? People are acting like monkeys. And then they're surprised that a Kadosh Baruch Hu makes them have uh, a look like a monkey. And even worse. But before HaKadosh Baruch Hu promised all of these curses, He gave us extraordinary blessings. And that's one of the things, Rabotai Karim, that we have to notice because there's such a significant difference between the bracha and the klala. Such a significant difference. HaKadosh Baruch Hu says, 
ועשיתם אותם ונתתי גשמכם בעיתם ונתנה הארץ יבולה ועץ השדה ייתן פריו right off the bat it solves most of people's worries about פרנסה most of people's worries about what's going to be tomorrow I can afford today but what's going to be tomorrow הקדוש ברוך הוא says simple if you follow my decrees observe my commandments and perform them don't just know the written Torah you have to perform what's also in the oral Torah the written and the oral Torah but not just know it you have to do it some people say that they are religious in their heart one heart attack and they become secular so HaKadosh Baruch Hu says that you have to follow these decrees and if you do the rain will be on its time the land will give its produce the tree of the field will give its fruit in so many words you have nothing to worry about the vast majority of people's worries the vast majority of why uh, uh, fights happen in a house between a husband and a wife is usually money you follow Torah and Mitzvot generally speaking there's no serious Shlombite problems but then you can say yeah but there are some people that are religious that uh, that uh, get divorced you're right they get divorced because they did something that's against the Torah they don't get divorced because they follow the Torah they get divorced because one time he looked somewhere and then touched somewhere and did somewhere that wasn't according to the Torah he acted like somebody else is his wife she acted like somebody else's husband they did a few things that are not according to the Torah even if they kept Shabbat even if they ate kosher even if they did everything else according to the Torah that one thing destroyed everything and that's where the divorce comes from Baruch Hashem it's still a relatively small number in comparison to our dear brothers that are living a mistake where over 80% of people in Western society are getting a divorce now you have a better chance of winning the lotto than, than staying married past five years so HaKadosh Baruch Hu says simply put you're not going to have problems you'll dwell securely in your land can anybody actually say that they feel secure wherever they live in the world right now whether you're in America or you're in Israel or you're in Colombia or you're in Russia or you're in Ukraine most people feel the same not secure the Jews that lived in Germany filled you know felt very very secure until they weren't until the pogroms and the, and, and the different anti-semitic murders started happening on a regular basis then Hitler came to power and while they put a lot of hope into false leaders like the Zionists they ended up realizing that the Zionists are in business with the Nazis the whole time behind their back sold the sold the Jewish people for a little bit of money with the transfer uh, agreement that they had Shemishmo anyway Rabotai Karim HaKadosh Baruch Hu says you don't need to be afraid of where you live you don't need to be afraid of mass shootings you don't need to be afraid of any of these things you just simply follow my Torah and truth be told this is relevant also to the Goyim because if they follow the Torah that's applicable to them they wouldn't have the issues that they have they wouldn't have their kids suddenly decide to take a bunch of guns and go to a school and kill people they wouldn't have these kids overdose on drugs at 11 years old they wouldn't have these kids have to go to prison at 13 years old they wouldn't have these problems if people would simply follow the Torah and HaKadosh Baruch Hu says not only would a person have all of these blessings but even if there was other reshaim in the world because so long as we are in this world there's always going to be wicked people always remember that HaKadosh Baruch Hu protects us where five of you will pursue a hundred and a hundred of you will pursue ten thousand just like the Maccabees 
The Maccabees were very few, but they destroyed the entire Greek army that was the biggest, most powerful in the world. Why? They were the religious few. Maccabees weren't uh, warriors and uh, swords, and they're warriors in Torah. They're warriors in Torah. And the Kalashbuch who says, you don't need to uh, be a warrior with swords and weapons. Like some people say, no, I'm, a, you know, I'm religious, but I'm going to go to the army. Why are you going to go to the army? For what? No, to defend the land. You think a Kalashbuch who needs you to defend the land? Kalashbuch who needs more people to defend the Torah. Defend Am Yisrael as far as keeping Am Yisrael, Am Yisrael. No, but it's right. It's the right thing. Show me, show, me, show me one big rabbi that says that it's the right thing. Especially when you have most of the army is anti-Torah. Then they just find one of the uh, generals over there in Eretz Yisrael, their general, the ones that they respect the most, the ones that are the most disciplined. Rape a bunch of his uh, soldiers, all the female soldiers as part of the, indu- uh, you know, the induction to the army have to go through him. There's a reason why the Chazoni says that for a woman to go to the Israeli army, to any army, it's it's better she die and not go to the army. But yeah, you have parents from different families here in America sending their daughters to the Israeli army for some strange reason. Torah says otherwise. Torah says you don't need an army. You need people to learn Torah. Sure, if there's a need, there's always going to be other people. But you don't need to have the biggest army. You need five people. Five people for a hundred. What, they have a bigger army? They have 10,000? Okay, a hundred people. If people simply believed what it says in the Torah, life would be different. Life would be different, Rabbi Karim. When people ask, yeah, but how does it work? Practically speaking, how does it work? That you have five people against a hundred people. I mean, technically, they surround them, and that's it. Or or if you just think about it, uh, you know, the Arabs, there's so many of them, two billion of them. If they really, if HaKadosh Baruch simply took away the, the, the protection that he has over his dear children and simply gave the Arabs a brain where they would simply spit, forget about weapons. They don't even need weapons. They don't need rockets. They don't need forks even. If they all just went to the same place and spit, they would drown all of Am Yisrael Hashem There's two billion of them. But HaKadosh Baruch Hu protects us. HaKadosh Baruch Hu protects us. The vast majority of the world doesn't feel safe. Even in their own backyard. Different leaders are being put in different countries that are working against their own people, regardless of where you are. Whether in Israel, in America, in Canada, in the South America altogether, each one is, the whole world is in a really, really difficult state right now. There's a recent report came out that said that uh, this year, 2022, according to the Gregorian calendar, there's a very high likelihood that um, a dozen countries are going to go bankrupt. We're not talking about little countries nobody ever heard of. And if things really do materialize, they say it could be a few dozen countries because of the debt crisis that no one wants to talk about. So the world, Kadosh Baruch Hu is preparing something. He's doing something. Something is cooking. Something is cooking, Rabotai, but we don't necessarily need 
to always worry about all the things that are bad, we have to also see how we can avoid all of these things. So if somebody says, you know what, okay, you know what, I'm going to start learning Torah. I'm going to go on YouTube, and I'm going to go rabbi and see what's going to hit, and first rabbi that hits, I'm going to learn. I'm going to press play. It's not so easy. Why? Just because you wanted to do tshuva doesn't necessarily mean that it works so easily. You have to have merit to do tshuva. You have to really want it. Kadosh Baruch Hu says, if you really, if you look for me with all of your heart and all of your soul, then you will find me. Meaning that you literally have to have merit for Kadosh Baruch Hu to make it easy for you. The younger you are, the easier it is to, to do tshuva. It's hard to do tshuva because of the hormones and all of the yetzerah that you have, but if you actually take action, you have a lot more help from Shemaim. But just because somebody says, Rabbi, such and such, and you press play, doesn't necessarily mean they're always going to land in the last, in the first place. You could have, obviously, one of the heretics that we've spoken about many times tell you that God needs you, rather than you need God. The prophet Job made a mistake. HaKadosh Baruch Hu gave him a very, very big test, a test like any other. And Job said, Maybe HaKadosh Baruch Hu made a mistake. You know, he's busy. And instead of Job, which in Hebrew is Eyov, he, uh, maybe the letters are misspelled out there. In Shemaim, it's Oyev, which means enemy. So Job gets rebuked by his dear friend, Yehu. And Yehu is a Talmit Chacham. And Yehu tells Job off, according to the Torah, how big his mistake is. That you think for a second that you are righteous and a Kadosh Baruch in essence is wrong. A Kadosh Baruch needs you for something. A Kadosh Baruch benefits from you in some way. Ki amare Yob tzadakti ve'ele esid mishpati chapter 34, verse 5. Job said, I was righteous and God has taken away my justice. That's what you think, Job. So Yahu says to him, Therefore, you men with understanding hearts, listen to me. To do evil is sacrilegious to God and iniquity to the Almighty. For he repays the deeds of man and causes man to find according to his conduct. says that whatever you're dealing with is because you cooked it. HaKadosh Baruch Hu is simply giving you what you cooked. You eat bad food, you'll have a stomachache. Very simple. And for that thought process that for a moment that you thought that maybe you're righteous and HaKadosh Baruch Hu is wrong, maybe HaKadosh Baruch Hu needs you, know this, in chapter 35, Look at the heavens and see. Gaze at the skies. The tower above you. Meaning, look how glorious Hashem is. Extraordinary the creation is. Every little detail out there. Kadosh Baruch could have simply made everything gray. One color. We wouldn't know the difference. Could have made everything one taste. 
Look at how many details HaKadosh Baruch Hu put in the creation. So much so that HaKadosh Baruch Hu put a survival instinct inside his creation. If you simply look, if you simply look at how glorious the creation is, it becomes very easy to realize not just how glorious Hashem is, but the rest of what Yehu says here. Elihu, Elihu, not Yehu. Elihu says here. He says, if your transgressions multiply, I'm sorry, if you have sinned, how have you affected him? If your transgressions multiply even, what have you done to him? If you are righteous, what have you given him? And what has he taken from your hand? Meaning, what do you think? That when you sin, you're hurting him? You're lowering him? When you say you're going to sin more, I'm not going to keep Shabbat anymore. Do this for this for me. I'm not going to keep Shabbat anymore. Don't keep Shabbat. Hashem is Hashem with or without you. Before you, after you. Oh, but shouldn't he be good to me if I'm righteous? If you are righteous, what are you giving him? What do you think? You're doing him a favor by keeping Shabbat? You're doing him a favor watching your eyes? Your evil affects you in society. And your righteousness affects you in society. It doesn't affect the Kadosh Baruch Hu whatsoever. To say that a Kadosh Baruch Hu needs anything is 100% apikosut. And countless poskim, countless chachamim throughout the ages discuss this. You go to Chovot Levavot, you go to the Gemara, you go to different chachamim to discuss in the philosophical aspects of the Torah. Chash v'shalom that a person would say that God needs anything. Which means that if a person simply says, you know what, I'm going to go to Rabbi such and such, because I want to be righteous. Pray before you go to Rabbi such and such. So this Rabbi such and such doesn't tell you something that's against the Torah. You have to mamash pray to Akadosh Bahu, give me a chance to be your servant. But the mind of a person starting out doesn't work that way. The mind of a person that's starting out typically thinks that their righteousness, in essence, makes Akadosh Baruch Hu obligated to them. He owes them. If I'm righteous, he's going to give me more money, right? If I'm righteous and keep such and such, then he's going to give me my zivug, he's going to give me my panasah, and he's going to give me this. Where do they learn this mentality? Aside from the Yetzirah, the Yetzirah soldiers that sell Judaism for free. They sell it. They tell them, listen, if you keep this, you're going to get this. If you keep this, you're going to get this. And although there are different zgulot for different things that a person does, that's never the reason of why we serve like Kadosh Baruch Hu. As Sefer Yov says in Tzadak Tamatitenu that even if you were the most righteous, what are you giving him? It's all for you. The question is, how do we see it? How do we get to a point of seeing that it really is for us? That it really is for us. As I said before, the, the, the prophet Job in his sefer says, Ki al adam yishalem lo ish that HaKadosh Baruch Hu repays the deeds of man, causes man to find accordingly to his conduct. 
Zohar Kadosh comments on this verse. In Parashat Korach, Daf Kuf Ein Zain, Amud Aleph. He says, Ki po'al adam yeshalem lo, the Pirush Matok Midvash, gives the, uh, he gives a, uh, Elaboration of what the Zohar says. He says, what is, what is the Aibarnash? Uh, what is this? What is this, uh, this verse that's talking about that Hashem causes men to find accordingly to its conduct? How does this apply to me? Okay, so if I do good, I'll get good. If I do bad, I do bad. That doesn't always work that way because sometimes you see a religious guy suffering uh, doesn't have panasa. Or a religious guy suffering because he hasn't found his ibuk. Or a religious couple hasn't had a baby yet. All types of things. You see religious people that, you know, overall they keep the basics, but they suffer. And the Yetzirah makes you think that, hey, whether you're religious or not religious, you're still going to struggle. At least enjoy life, right? Zohar Kadosh says, what does this mean? What does this mean? Are Adam olech olam. A person goes into this world and deals with the nonsense of this world. That's what he deals with. Instead of serving, focusing on serving HaKadosh Baruch Hu, focusing on the purpose of life, focusing on the bigger things that give his life a purpose, he toils in the shtuyot of the world, just like Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai came out of the Me'ara, came out of the cave, saw a bunch of people spending their time chasing money, spending their time toiling in this world and not really so, so much uh, focus on building themselves a next world. He couldn't take it. He was so holy, he couldn't take it. Literally, by looking at them, they would go on fire. Kadosh Baruch says to Rabbi Shimon Bayochai and his son, Rabbi Elazar, would you guys come to destroy my world? Go back in the cave. You're too holy. Went in the cave for another year, learned a little bit more Torah to soften them, came back into the world. Rabbi Lazar still, still needed some help to help to deal with people because every time he'd look at them, they'd freeze. So Rabbi Shimon would warm them up and bring them and thaw them out until they normalized into the world. Why? Because they were already at such a level that they saw the truth for what it is. Clear. The rest of the world sees things in an unclear way. The less you study Torah, the more things are in front of you and in between you and the truth. So a person lives his life 10, 20, 30, 50, 60, 70 years osek with the nonsense of the world. And does whatever he feels like it. And sins right in front of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. How could it be right in front of HaKadosh Baruch Hu? He's everywhere. A person thinks that, oh, if I sin in, a, in that room, I sin in that room, no one's going to see me. You're right. The people are not going to see you, but HaKadosh Baruch Hu is right there with you. Right there, he's watching you. The problem is you don't believe it. You don't believe it because those in the room. So that's what you think. Oh, my wife is not here. My husband's not here. 
The neighbor is not here. The boss is not here. They're not going to see this. They're not going to see that. You're right. They're not going to see it. Akadosh Baruch is. And guess what? He's going to show them too. The Midrash Rabbah says that one of the ways that Akadosh Baruch punishes the adulterer that cheats on her husband is to make sure that the next baby, whether that baby came from the seed of or from the boyfriend, looks like the boyfriend. Why? To expose the sin. Now people will sometimes say, Rabbi, why do you always talk about this stuff? It's not really relevant to us religious people. Not sure what, you're, what world you're living in. A woman one time called me and she said, my husband is very mad at me. Why is he really mad at you? From what I know, you're a religious woman, relatively modest, gave him kids. What is he mad about? Oh, he's mad that uh, I cheated on him while I was pregnant. Sometimes I don't know how to respond to these people. I have to wait, I have to delay it. Just you have to think about it, cool down, figure out. How is she asking this question? Why is he mad at her? She cheated on him while she was husband, while she was pregnant with somebody. And you wonder, you wonder, you wonder, how does this person go to sleep at night and think that, every, that, that's, that she is in the right here somehow? The world is upside down. People have no concept of what's right and wrong. Because sometimes they press the button, sometimes they open the book, and they don't have the siyata dishmaya to see the truth for what it is. Because most of the time they're dealing with the nonsense of the world. So yes, maybe they'll watch a Shi'ul Torah, but right before, right after, they're also going to watch a Hollywood film. Or they're going to watch the news. Or they're going to say Lashon with their boyfriends and girlfriends for three and a half hours a day. So even if there is a little bit of good, there's a mitzvah here, there's a mitzvah there, it's, there's usually some filth that's ruining it. So that's why the Zohar is not talking about just the secular people that are driving on Shabbat or anything like that. He's talking about regular person, a frum yid, if you will, goes in this world and deals with the nonsense of the world, sins in front of a Kadosh Baruch Hu, and because of that sin, he creates demons. Therefore, that same action is hanging over him. What does it mean hanging over him? Meaning to say that that demon that was created due to his sin, that is what's punishing him. You have anxiety, you have financial problems, your left leg hurts, but nobody knows why. All of a sudden, you have a headache, you just lost $50,000, half of your account in, in, in the stock market, even though the company announced good earnings. Your house is the only house on the block that had damage from the most recent storm. All of these strange things. Don't blame anyone other than yourself. Why? Who's punishing you? Your own sin. You made a sin 
that sin created a demon, and that demon has a job to do, which is what? Trach on your head. How often? Until you do tshuva. Until you do tshuva. You have anxiety? Oh, that's because of some sin you made two weeks ago, a month ago, six months ago, five years ago. You still haven't done tshuva for it. Just lost some money? That's a sin too. Says the Zohar Kedosh, Ven lo yitra'em, ela al atzmo shehu garam ba'avono. He has no one to blame but himself, because he's the one that sinned. He's the one that created this mashchit. Zeo shekatuv, he gives a source. What's the source aside from, he's given the commentary of what this verse means in, the, in Job. He says there's another, this is not the only place that talks about it. It's not the only place. He says also the prophet Jeremiah. Said it in the name of Akadosh Baruch Hu himself. Teasrecha ra'atecha. Chapter 2, verse 19 from Jeremiah. Teasrecha ra'atecha. That your evil will cause you suffering. Thereby meaning that the evil deed that a person made creates a mashchit, creates a demon. And that demon will cause him the pain. Now, if you go further into that Jeremiah, you're going to see wonders. Literally, if you understand what I'm about to say, it was actually worth it to be born just to see what Jeremiah says in the name of Kadosh Baruch Hu. Because it has to do not just with my life and your life, it literally has to do with the whole world. Every person in the world. Prophecy from Jeremiah. It's literally unbelievable. Jeremiah suffered endlessly during his life. Why? He wanted to help Am Yisrael Duchuva. So instead of saying, thank you, Chazaku Baruch, we love you, how much should we donate? Maybe we should open centers everywhere in your name. What do they do? They try to rape him. They beat him up. They throw him in a hole. And who do they give the money to? Who do they give the kavod to? Who do they help? All the nevyeh shekel. All the shakranim. All the fakers. The liars. Jeremiah says the following. Karim. It's unbelievable. In chapter 2. Verse number 19, the same, same chapter, same verse that he says, Teasrecha ra'atecha. Your evil will castigate you. Your waywardness shall chasten you. Realize and understand that your forsaking of Hashem, your God, is evil and bitter, and my awe was not upon you. She said, how did you get to that point where you're even making sins, Bichlal? If you knew who HaKadosh Baruch Hu is and how great He is to you, He gave you food. He gave you a wife. He gave you a husband. He gave you kids. He gave you air in your lungs. He gave you a society to live in. He gave you all, everything you have. If a person simply 
calculates how many miracles HaKadosh Baruch Hu had to make for you to eat a sandwich. I made a shiur about it one time. There's a clip out there. The miracles of a sandwich, I think it's called. Something to do with sandwich. Go to my channel, type in the word sandwich. It's unbelievable how many things have to happen for HaKadosh Baruch Hu to give you a sandwich. How many thousands upon thousands of people have to work and toil and break their heads and do everything just for you to have a simple sandwich. And I'm not even talking about a fancy sandwich with some delicious chicken or beef or what. No, no. Any sandwich. Just to have the bread. You know how many thousands of people HaKadosh Baruch Hu has to manipulate in the world in order for you to have a piece of bread? How many things that Kadosh Baruch Hu has to manipulate in creation for you to have an apple? If a person simply looks at the basic things in his life, we're not even talking about look at the wonders of the universe and the, and the, and the, and the unknown of the ocean. Simply look at the first thing you see when you get home. And if you track how many people and how many things had to happen in order for that thing to exist just for you to have it on your desk, it's unbelievable. You open your door, first thing you see, I don't know, a picture of you and your husband. Do you know how many people had to change their life in order for you to have that picture? Like, what? Just a picture. No, it's not just a picture. It's not just a picture. Somebody had to have the idea. Do you know what? That tree that perhaps somebody else planted 30, 40, 60, 100 years ago, I'm going to cut it. Why? I'm going to take that wood. And I'm going to sell that wood. And that's what he does. And then he finds somebody else. Hey, you want some wood? Sure, I can do something with that wood. All right, I'll sell it to you. They negotiate a price. They don't agree on terms. So then the guy says, you know what? Oh, my lawyer will talk to you. Okay, so that means I have to get a lawyer. So another couple of people join. And then they negotiate. And they come to terms. He buys the wood. After he buys the wood, got to go to work to go make my money back. But how am I going to make my money back with just a piece of wood? I have to get tools. Where am I going to get tools from? He has to go and get tools that are specifically good for this wood. Because if he just uses the, the, the things that he already has, it's going to ruin the wood. You can't just saw it with any saw. You can't just put any, any, any oil on it. This is a special type of wood. So you have to go to a guy that's an expert in wood cutting, but also happens to make saws. That's going to give you the best. But not only that, you have to make sure that you go to another guy that's an expert in telling you how much wood you can get out of this tree. Because surely you don't want to waste this expensive wood. You don't just cut circles and say, oh yeah, let's just try it out. You have to make the most out of every little piece of wood that you have. But not only that, you have to protect the woods. You have to go to another guy who has specific types of oils and chemicals to protect the wood. Because if you don't, the bugs are going to eat it. If not at your factory, at, the, at your customer's factory. And then no one's ever going to buy from you anything. They won't even buy bubble gum from you. Needless to say, wood. So you have to go to a guy that makes that. And then after that, you have to, you know, it's, I have to do all this business, run the business, get the wood, get the this. I don't have time to cut the wood. I need to hire an employee. Who wants to cut wood in town? And you find some young guy that says, you know what, I'll cut the wood. Do you know how to cut the wood? No. Okay, so you know what, I'll teach you how to cut wood. 
on the wood that I don't really need. Waste the money on that one before you cut this wood. Because that one, we're going to make a fancy frame out of. And he decides to teach him for six months. He has to invest six months of his life to teach this young man how to cut wood before he gives him the wood that's really, really expensive. Finally, he cuts the wood and he says, good job. Now we can sell these pieces to the guy that needs this type of quality wood. They're not in every store. They're not in every corner. There's not like, it's not like drugs where it's in every corner somebody's selling something. You have to find somebody that actually wants this type of wood and is willing to pay you the money for the wood. Because if you just simply go to the market and say, listen, you guys, you guys want this wood? They say, yeah, we'll give you $10 for it. What $10? So $500 a, a piece. What $10? Listen, $10 is all we can pay. So you have to go to a guy that can appreciate wood to buy the wood that you're selling at the price that you need in order to make all of this worth it. And eventually you find that guy and you agree to terms. And of course, there has to be lawyers again because if there's no lawyers, who's going to lie? And then you make a deal and you sell the wood and he says, you know what? I don't even want to make the frames because I could just flip this to my competitor who's kind of my friend but not really and just make 50% of my money. And he makes a deal and he doesn't actually end up making it into a frame or into a table. He just flips it like people do with houses and lives and relationships. And he sells it to somebody else for a 30, 40, 50% premium. And before you know it, the wood has exchanged a half a dozen or a dozen hands before anybody actually works on it. And eventually somebody says, you know what, I'm going to cut it, I'm going to make it into a picture. But then, who cares if I, okay, I made it into a frame. Well, my family picture on it, no one's going to care about my family picture, I have to sell this frame. Somebody needs to want this frame. But there's a ton of frames out there. Okay, so I'll put it on Amazon, I'll put it on eBay, I'll put it in the store, I'll put it on this website, I'll put it on the website that nobody ever goes to, I'll put it everywhere, I'll even send a newsletter. But who knows how to do all those things? I have to hire somebody that knows how to manage an Amazon store and somebody that knows how to do an eBay store and somebody that knows how to do a newsletter. But wait a minute. That means that I need Amazon to exist eBay to exist with their hundreds of thousands of employees. Some guy 20 years ago has to come up with an idea to sell books on the internet that no one uses just for me to have his company exist so I can sell my frame. And I may not even sell it there. I may end up selling it in my store. But either way, I got it listed everywhere. But then I realized, wait a minute, there's a lot of competition. Everybody else also got even better wood or the same wood or inferior wood, but it looks just as good. So I have to be competitive with the price more than I thought. And maybe I'll put it in an auction and you have to think about all of these different things and you figure, I can't do it. I need a consultant. And you have to hire another guy to help you sell what you bought that you thought you knew how to sell. And eventually you figure out, okay, I'm going to do this. And somebody walks into the store and says, I need a frame. And you say, sure, have this one. No, I'm actually looking for a different color. And this thing sits in your store for six months before somebody eventually buys it. And they decide to buy the frame and say, you know what? I'll put a picture in it. And they put the family picture in there. But the picture doesn't come by itself. Somebody had to invent that technology of taking a little device that you click a button on and it records what it sees and then you could take the film from it and take it to a department and today there isn't even film, it's all digital and all of those different buttons and all of those different microprocessors have to work perfect 
before you email them to the company that's going to develop the picture, that's going to use a printer that somebody had to also develop, that required hundreds of thousands of workers to make the microprocessors and the plastic and the different inks, so on and so forth, eventually to print this picture that you got for $3.99. And you put that picture in the fancy frame and you walk into your house and say, what? It's just a frame. Yeah, it's just a frame for you. Who, on the other hand, maybe a half a million people had to work for that frame. And it's no less with your sandwich, or your camera, or your car, or anything else you have in creation. Jeremiah the prophet says, you do evil, you act wayward, you go against the Kadosh Baruch Hu. Why? Very simple. My awe was not upon you. Simple. It's not because you hate God. It's not because you are looking to be the enemy of God. Even the enemies of God don't want to be the enemies of God typically. There was only one ingredient missing. Yirat Shamayim. If you're not afraid of a Kadosh Baruch Hu, you will make every crime under the sun. Why? The less fear a person has from Hashem, the more disconnected he is from Him, the more disconnected she is from Him, and the more they make themselves into God. Paro says to Moshe Rabbeinu, who is this God that I should listen to Him? How can you ask such a stupid question if you're so smart, Paro? Who is this God that I should listen to Him? Who is this God? I am God. He says, what are you talking about, this God that you're talking to? I'm God. He thinks he's God. How could it be that there's another God? I'm, I'm God, he tells him. What are you talking about? I didn't tell you to take Amisad out. Who is this God that you're talking about? The Midrash says, and the Gemara also, Akadosh Baruch Hu brought death to the world. Because he saw that there's going to be people that turn themselves into God. Specifically, Nebuchadnezzar, Paro, Hiram, Melech Tzur. In fact, the Gemara in Maseret Baba Metzia says that HaKadosh Baruch Hu gave a blessing to Hiram. Hiram helped Shlomo HaMelech build the Bet HaMikdash. Gave him special wood. For that... Shlomo HaMelech gave him an entire city full of gold. Because Shlomo HaMelech had endless amount of gold. He knew exactly where all the different types of gold are in the world. And one of the types of gold, the Gemara says, this gold creates gold. You put a bar of gold in a drawer, tomorrow it gives a baby. It's two bars. You put it there for a week, you're all a whole family of gold. So Shlomo HaMelech had literally a city full of gold. Gold was like sand at the time of Shlomo HaMelech. So after Hiram gave him the wood, he's like, yeah, take this whole city full of gold. But that wasn't the only thing. HaKadosh Baruch Hu gave Hiram Orech Yamin. He lived hundreds of years, maybe over a thousand years. Eventually thought himself to be a god. He says, I'm not dying. Smartest man in the world. Created himself a Castle, an empire, if you will. 
a palace with seven levels, symbolizing the seven different heavens, as if he's God. HaKadosh Baruch Hu sees that Hiram, that got this blessing, goes against HaKadosh Baruch Hu in such a way that he turns himself into a god, he sends him the prophet Yechezkel. But how is Yechezkel going to go to the seventh level? It's high, it's in the air. Simple. HaKadosh Baruch Hu is simply going to make him fly. What is that big deal for HaKadosh Baruch Hu? Ayad Hashem HaKadosh Baruch Hu's hand is short, he can't do something like that, what's the big deal? Hiram thought that he's alone. The Gemara in Masech says, Yechezkel arrives in the seventh level, no one can get there. How did you get here? Hiram immediately is scared to death. And then Yechezkel says to Hiram, in the name of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, Bechan istakalti ubarati nekavim nekavim. When I created the world, HaKadosh Baruch Hu says, I saw already in the future that I'm going to have you in this world and you're going to create such an illusion that people are going to think you're God and you yourself are going to think you're God. And because of you, I created a body with holes, with a digestive system to remind you that my beautiful world that looks good, that tastes good, that smells good, when you consume it and it comes out of your body, it's disgusting. People go to the bathroom because of Hiram's arrogance. To remind you you're human. The prophet Jeremiah says when you're lacking Yirat Shamayim, literally, a sin, a, one minute distinguishes a person from being a murderer. So much so that the Gemara says that we learn from Avraham Avinu, you're not allowed to be in a closed room with a person that doesn't have Yirat Shamayim. Why? He may kill you. That's what Avraham says to Avimelech. That he asks him, how come you didn't tell me that your wife is your wife? You told me she's your sister. Avraham says to him, because I saw there's no Yirat Shamayim here, and they'll kill me because of my wife. Chachamim say from there, we learn, person that doesn't have Yirat Shamayim, always suspect murderer. If you ask Avraham Avinu, are you surprised that this kid just killed 20 people in the school? He says, no. Why, why would I be surprised? He was a murderer in training his whole life living a life with no fear of the Almighty, how do you expect him not to be a murderer? The surprise is that there isn't more murder. That's the surprise. That's the chidush. That's the miracle. That a Kadosh who has enough mercy on his creation that people are not eating each other in the streets. That's why the Mishnah in Avot says that you even have to pray for the government of the place that you live in. Even if they're going Pray for there to be order. Because if there wasn't some order from a government, people would eat each other and kill each other in the streets. So the prophet Jeremiah says, when we don't have Yirat Shamayim, all hell breaks loose. But then he gives a prophet, then he tells us, how bad does it get? He says, that the person has the only Yirat Shamayim only continues to get worse and worse until he does tshuva, if he does tshuva. And HaKadosh Baruch Hu says, for I have always broken your yoke, torn off your straps, and you've said, I won't transgress. You said, no, no, I won't, I won't make any sins. I won't make any sins. 
Yet upon every lofty hill and under every leafy tree, you wander like a harlot. He says, you say, I'm religious, Rabbi. This stuff that you're talking about, it's not really relevant to me. HaKadosh Baruch Hu says, yeah, yeah, you say you're religious, but then you sin. Not only you sin, not only a person sins. HaKadosh Baruch Hu says, when you have no Yirat Shamayim, the person starts chasing sins like a, like a zona, like a prostitute, a harlot. But he thinks no one can see it, like he's hiding under a leaf. No one can see him sin. HaKadosh Baruch Hu says, obviously I'm watching the whole thing. Now if you think, no, but maybe this is only relevant to 3,000 years ago. Fast forward to the Chidush. Same chapter, just a few more verses. You go to verse 27. Kadosh Baruch Hu says, Omrim la'etz aviata velaeven at yildatanu ki panu elai Oref velo panim ube'et ra'atam yomru kuma v'oshienu. Translation. You said to the wood, you're my father. And to the stone, you have borne us. To me, says Hashem, they turned their backs and not their faces. But in their time of distress, they will say, Arise and save us. What's Jeremiah telling us here? It's prophecy for where we are today. HaKadosh Baruch Hu's Torah has been emet since the second he put it together, 974 generations before he created the world. But yet, all types of reshaim tried to distort the Torah throughout all of the generations. Whether it was the Karaites, the Sadducees, the Batrises, the Christians, the Catholics, the Arabs, and so on and so forth. HaKadosh Baruch Hu says, all of these people that are lacking, lacking fear of the Almighty, in the end of days, they're going to call the Eitz, the wood, my father, like the Christians call their Yeshu, their father in heaven, because they believe Yeshu is God. Anytime you see wood, it's symbolic of Christianity, of their cross, which is one of the dumbest things in history to celebrate that he got hung on a cross. It's like celebrating an electric chair that killed somebody. Yeah, well, everybody's going to have a chain of an electric chair. He says, so you call the eighth, you call the wood, my father. And the Evan, you say, this is, you born us, you're my forefather. Who's the Evan? Evan is the Muslims that have their uh, Kaaba, their stone, their cube in Mecca which they say is the holiest place for them because they believe that Avraham Avinu built it with Ishmael, one of the versions. Their forefather, they believe, is Avraham Avinu and Ishmael. Just like the verse says. But even more so, the verse continues, says, that you turn my back, they turn their back, and they don't face me anymore. Just like the Arabs. 
who initially, when they first started Islam, when they prayed, they used to pray facing Yerushalayim. But then some time ago, they changed. They faced the stone now. The stone they say that uh, Abraham Avinu built, they faced the stone, which means that they put their back to Yerushalayim. Just like the verse says. Another thing Abba Ephraim says is if you notice, Eitz is not just relevant to the Christians. It's not just them, but also to the rest of society, needless to say, us. Where one of the biggest problems we have today is Eloi Kesef, Eloi Zav, the people that are worship money and are willing to go into all types of corrupt businesses and do all types of things that are against the Torah with money. It says, Eitz has Gimatria 160. Kesef, meaning money, also has Gimatria 160. So the idol of Eitz, the idol of, of wood, is also referring to money. Now, the beautiful part about the Torah is that it doesn't have only the warnings, but also has the solutions. Also has the solutions. HaKadosh Baruch Hu says, Banim gadalti v'romamti v'em pashubi that children I've raised and exalted and they have rebelled against me. But yet, the very same HaKadosh Baruch Hu tells the prophets that he's waiting for us. How long is he waiting for us? Endlessly. The Zohar Kadosh in Parashat Noach in Daflamid Amud Aleph says Rabbi Eliezer Omer Kol Agaliot Shegalta Knesset Israel Natana Kadosh Baruchuz Man Vekets all of the other exiles we've had in history, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, the second that he did it, destroyed the first Bet HaMikdash, he already decreed that it's going to be seven years between the first and the, uh, and the second Bet HaMikdash. Meaning from the destruction of the first Bet HaMikdash until they built the second Bet HaMikdash, seven year difference. The exiles before it, everything had in a specific time. He already decided it ahead of time. But what got it to eventually go? When did HaKadosh Baruch Hu make the exile actually uh, end? When Am Yisrael B'Tshuva. But, But the last exile, the one that we're in, there's no specific time. Rather, unlike the other exiles we've had before, this exile that we're in depends on when we're going to do tshuva. That's when it's going to end. And Rabbi Eliezer brings a verse from the Torah, Sefer Dvarim, Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse, verse 2. That's why it's written, that you return to Hashem your God, and listen to, to his voice. Listen to what he says. And also it says in verse 4, 
בקצה השמיים, משם יקבצך אדוני אלוהיך ומשם יקחך. והקדוש ברוך הוא says that if you're going to be anywhere, wherever you're going to be, end of the world, but you're going to do tshuva, you're going to actually want to do tshuva, HaKadosh Baruch Hu will get you. He'll save you. Meaning that you don't have to be in America, in Israel, in New York, in wherever, for HaKadosh Baruch Hu to care about your tshuva. If you are in the middle of Australia, you're in the middle of Guam, you're in the middle of uh, Geinom, wherever you are in the world, you had Siyat Lishmael one day say, you know what, what's the purpose of life? And you pray to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, you say, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, I need something, okay, help me out. All of a sudden you see a little USB somewhere, gives you a book or something, or a video, you press play, discover the truth, you see what Torah is, you start watching Be'ezrat Hashem, you start watching Rabbi this, you say Rabbi that. Say, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, I want you. HaKadosh Baruch Hu says, it doesn't matter where you are, it doesn't matter if you're in a community, you're not in a community, you grew up from, you grew up not from, your father's a rabbi, your father's a heretic, it'll make a difference. You want a Kadosh Baruch Hu, HaKadosh Baruch Hu says, I got you. I got you. I'll save you, I'll take care of you, but all I want from you is for you to do tshuva. You have to start it. You have to start it. The Talmud of Rabbi Eliezer asked the rabbi a question. Rabbi Akiva, ask him. Amar le Rabbi Akiva, im ken, e'ach yeda l'it'orra kuleun chadr l'tshuva. Rabbi Akiva asks, his rabbi, how is it going to be that there's going to be, uh, the exile is going to end, and everyone's going to do tshuva. How is this one, that's in the end of the world, and that one at the end of the world, going to connect? How is there going to be unity? Meaning, I swear to you. שהקדוש ברוך הוא מסתכל תמיד מתי יחזרו ויעשו להם טוב שכתוב בישעיהו לכן ישעיהו למד לכן יחכה אדוני לחננכם מחכה תמיד מתי יחזרו בתשובה רבי אליעזר says I swear to you רבי עקיבא if the rabbis do תשובה or a single קהילה one קהילה מניין of people they do תשובה their merit is so big, if it's a single kilah or the rabbis do. Technically, it should be much easier to get the rabbis to do the tshuva. You would think. But if it wasn't, then Rabbi Eliezer wouldn't give us a second option. One minyan of people, they do tshuva, they're together, they're united, they're not fighting one with the other. He wants to read today, he wants to read today, he wants to be that one, he wants... No, no more of that stuff. No machloket. One that their schut is so big in the eyes of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, that the, the HaKadosh Baruch Hu will end the exile. Why? Why is this so big? Because HaKadosh Baruch Hu is always looking at us, waiting for us to do tshuva. Meaning that's all HaKadosh Baruch Hu is doing. He's simply waiting for us to finally do tshuva. 
And that's why it says in the, by the prophet Yeshaya, Isaiah, in chapter 30, that HaKadosh Baruch Hu is waiting for us always to finally do tshuva. What is this like, Rabotai? This is like a man married a woman and he says, I'm going to do anything for you. Anything for you, just be a good wife. Okay, they get married. He says, honey, I'm going to go out for a little while. Okay, I'll see you later. She goes out. She doesn't come back. Calls her. You okay? Yeah, yeah, I'm fine, I'm fine. Whoops. One o'clock in the morning. Yeah, yeah, I'm with my girlfriends. Okay, you coming home? No, no, I'll be back in a little while. A little while, not home, but a little while. A few days. Okay, well, what is he going to do? Poor guy's newly married, doesn't know, never seen such a thing, never heard of such a thing. A few days later, she's not home. You coming? Yeah, yeah, I'm coming, I'm coming. Stop bothering me. Wow, I'm your, I'm your husband. Okay, husband, no husband. Stop bothering me. I'll be back when I want to be back. I'm, I'm a grown woman. I'll be back. Two weeks pass. She's still not home. You still want to be married? Yeah, yeah, we're married. We're married. I love you. You love me. All that good stuff. But how come you're not coming home? I'm busy. I'm doing stuff. Six months pass. Hey, honey, listen. I miss you. I haven't seen you in six months. Um, just so you know, while you were gone, and I know you're busy, so I'm not going to bother you anymore. I just want to let you I redid the whole house. I redid the whole house, and you have your own section in the house. Just come home. Okay, okay, I'll be home soon. When are you going to be home? Soon, soon. Six months later. Honey, I got you a new car. It's the best car in the world, just for you. And I got it special paint, because I remember you told me when we were dating that you like light blue. I ordered a light blue from Italy just to put on the car, specially made for you. And it's waiting for you in the lot. You want to see it? Sure, I'll see you when I come back. I love you. Yeah, yeah, sure, I love you too. Two years later, honey, how are you doing? Good, good, what do you want? Um, oh, I'm just asking if you're coming home. Soon I'm coming. Okay, soon. What are you doing today? Why are you asking so many questions? I'm coming soon. Talk to you soon. Click. Five years later. Hi, honey. How are you doing? Good, good. You still love me? Of course I love you. You miss me? Yeah, of course I miss you. Okay. I'll see you later. Yeah, yeah, you'll see me. Oh, actually, no. Before you go, I got to tell you something. Oh, yeah, sure. What do you want? What do you want, honey? What do you want? What do you want? I, I can pick you up from the airport. You want me to help you? What can I do for you? Can you send me some more money? Maybe come home, I'll give it to you. No, 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 I need it over here. I've got a few things I'm doing. Can you send me some more money? Sure. How long? 2,000 years. Am Yisrael is doing this to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And HaKadosh Baruch Hu is still calling every day, every week. He says, honey, I got it for you. And what do we say? Can you send me some more money? But HaKadosh Baruch Hu is our Father in Heaven and He still loves us. And he loves us so much that the second we show interest, the second we show Hashem, you know what? I know I've been gone for 2,000 years and it's not really so nice. Take me back. 
Of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He starts singing for you. Oh, yeah. Like as if nothing ever happened. Illogical. That's reality. That's what Rabbi Eliezer is trying to teach us. All HaKadosh Baruch Hu wants from us is to do tshuva. And when a person does just a little bit of tshuva, HaKadosh Baruch Hu literally will change creation for him. But sometimes, a per- person has to go to different difficulties in order to see how much HaKadosh Baruch Hu loves him. The Midrash, Rabbah, Parashat Bechukotai, this week's parasha, says an extraordinary story. A story that's very applicable to everybody that sees themselves trying. I'm trying, Rabbi. I'm keeping. I'm modest. I'm this. I'm that. But I still have this problem. The health issue, the financial issue, the kid issue, the husband issue, the wife issue, the whatever issue. And I don't understand why God is not giving me what I want. How come this Reshaim are getting it? He's driving a Porsche. He's uh, just bought a second house. He's a CEO of a company. He shouldn't even be a bellboy, but he's a CEO. He's this, he's that. How come the Reshaim are winning? If you see the Reshaim winning, think of this. The Midrash Rabbi in Parashat Bechukotai says that there was an incident that gives a clarity on this verse that we've been talking about in Job chapter 34 verse 11 that regarding this that uh, he, pay, he repays meaning Hashem repays the deeds of man and causes a man to find according to his conduct. It says one story that happened that elaborates on this verse is that there was a guy that had two sons. And one son dealt with mitzvah. Mitzvah, anytime the Midrash says mitzvah, it's talking about tzedakah. One guy was obsessed with giving tzedakah. Loved giving tzedakah. And his brother, stingiest person on earth, had the money. It wasn't like he didn't have the money. But he wanted for himself. Why should I give tzedakah? I worked for it. If he wants money, he should go work for it. That was his logic. That's the logic of a lot of people. People get impressed when millionaires give a million dollars. They would tell the Rav Steinemann, the Rav Shalom, you know, Kvod Rav, this one is uh, he's very generous. He gave ten million dollars. And they see Rav Steinemann, nothing. For the Rav, it's ten million dollars. He says, yeah, but he has a hundred. If you told me he gave ninety, and he kept 10, then maybe I say, Chazaku Baruch. But he gave 10. He kept 90 for himself. 10 million for 100,000 Bachurim to eat, 90 for one. If he told me it's the opposite, then okay, Chazaku Baruch. Some people say, yeah, I give, I give. Okay, Chazaku Baruch. How much do you give versus how much you get? Only you and HaKadosh Baruch Hu know. But some people... They simply don't even believe in giving at all. They are anti-giving. Unless they're going to get something in return. So they'll sponsor the new cage in the zoo for the new elephant because they're going to name 
this gate after his father's name that died, Allah Shalom. We went to a zoo not too long ago with the kids, and I saw that the cage for Joshua the bear was dedicated in the memory of such and such's parents. Somebody donated hundreds of thousands of dollars to cage this bear named Joshua in the memory of his parents. Do you know how much his parents are suffering because of how stupid their kid is? But it's their fault. And Rashid Chochmah says that when he goes up, on this kid, if he doesn't do tshuva, he goes up to Shamaim, in his deen, they're going to bring his parents. And I tell him, you know, you don't have to go to Gainom now because instead of giving tzedakah, you gave it to a cage of a bear. Instead of going to Beknesset, you went to the mall. Instead of keeping Shabbat, you uh, kept Sunday. You kept a, uh, the, uh, your stock portfolio active. You kept uh, a lot of things, but not Shabbat. Instead of putting on tefillin, you put a tattoo. So you have to go to Gainom. Yeah, but I didn't know. Oh, you're right, you didn't know. That's why didn't you know? My parents didn't send me to yeshiva. They sent me to public school. I was friends with Jose. I was friends with, uh, with the one. I was friends with Tindo. I was friends with all these guys. The guys at the football team, Travis, all these guys, Tyrone. Those are my boys. I grew up with them. You're right. Your parents sent you to a public school. How would you be expected to know about Shabbat? Your parents sent you to a public school. How could your, how could your parents expect you to know to put on tefillin? Your parents sent you to a place that speaks against the Kadosh Baruch saying that you came from a monkey. How can you think otherwise and go against your teachers? If your teacher says you came from a monkey, you have to believe him, no? The teacher sometimes looks like a monkey. She says, yeah, you know what? He's closer to the monkey than me. <laughs> so you listen to your teacher. So you know what? You have a case. Let's bring your parents. And the Rashid Tuchmah says, Akadosh Baruch Hu brings his parents to the deen. And he starts hitting his parents. Why didn't you send me to yeshiva? But then there's some kids that have, are afraid of their parents. No, I'm not going to hit my parents. So Rashid Tuchmah says, then his parents hit him. The Midrash here says there was a guy that had two sons. One liked to give tzedakah. The other one, stingy, wanted to keep everything for himself. The one that had tzedakah in the beginning had money, but he loved giving tzedakah. He couldn't bear seeing people suffer. He saw there was an orphan, here he goes. He saw there's trying to start a bet Midrash, here you go. He saw there's a widow, here you go. He saw there's a girl trying to get married, the parents don't have any money, here you go. Wherever he could, whatever he could, he give. So much so that he borrowed money against his house and eventually couldn't pay it back and they took his house. Hey, what's going on? He's giving tzakai tzaddik. Why isn't the Kadosh Baruch Hu paying him reward? One day, his dear wife says to him, here, Oshana Rabbah is finished. Here's 10 coins. That's all we have. Go buy the kids something in the market. 
So this guy goes to the market. As soon as he gets to the market, he sees the gabayet tzedakah, the people that collect money for the community for different tragedies. Oh, here you go. Here's the, here's the gvir. Everybody knows him. He's the one that gives tzedakah. Oh, here he is. Let's go see him. He says, oh, how are you? How are you doing? How are you? Listen, we're collecting money for a poor orphan. We're trying to get her a jacket. It's winter. Miskena, she doesn't have anything. You have anything? You're, no, you give tzedakah. Why don't you give your share? The guy says, of course, of course. Yeah, what I, oh, 10 coins. Yeah, I have 10 coins. Here you go, take everything he has left. And he's supposed to buy his kids some food. He's supposed to buy his own kids something from the market. That's all he has left. He gives it to the show. Why? She doesn't have a jacket. But now he will. Well, can't go home. I can't go home, so he goes to the synagogue instead. He sees the synagogue. On the table over there is a bunch of etrogim. Because after Hoshana Rabbah, the people leave their lulavim and etrogim over there. They don't need them anymore. And the kids play with them. So it's like hefker. No one owns them anymore. So he takes, the etro- he takes some etrogim, puts them in a sack. And he says, I can't go home right now. My wife's going to kill me. So he, gets, he goes to a ship. And he goes to the next city. And you ask, wait a minute, how is he going to the next city? I thought he didn't have any money. Simple. In those days, you go to a ship, you don't have any money, just simply tell the guy, listen, we're going to go on a voyage, we're going to go on a trip, I'll be your servant for this whole trip. I'll clean, I'll do, I'll do whatever you need to do, just take me to the next point, wherever you're going. So he gets on a ship with a little sack of etrogim. Who knows where Kadosh Baruch is going to lead him to. As you would have it, the next city over that he goes to, the king has a severe stomach problem. The doctors can't do anything. He has a dream, the Midrash says. He has a dream, and in the dream, they tell him, if you want a cure, go eat the etrogim that the Jewish people made a blessing on. Not just any etrog. The the etrog that the Jewish people made a blessing on. He wakes up, he takes the dream seriously. He sends all of his soldiers, look everywhere for Jewish people. And if you found the Jewish people, make sure they're religious and they have an etrog that they made a blessing and they didn't eat it yet. Or turn it into jelly. There's really not many Jews. Can't find anything. The poor king is suffering, no cure. This guy lands in the, from with the ship, and he's just sitting there by the, uh, by the ship over there. The soldiers look at him and say, what are you doing? I'm here. What do you have? What do you have to sell? Nothing. I don't have anything to sell. You have a sack. What do you mean you don't have a sack? So he thought maybe they're trying to collect taxes from him. But he brought some. He goes, no, no, I'm a poor man. I don't have anything. All I have is these etogim. Etogim? Give us the sack. Let me see. They open the sack. Say, what is this? What is etogim? What is that? Said, no, this is the etogim that the Jewish people. They use it from mitzvah. We bless on it. Oh, yo, you remember? The king, the king. Come, 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 come. Yalla, let's go, let's go. He has no idea what's going on. He thinks maybe they're going to take him to jail. Maybe it's illegal. He has no idea what's going on. Immediately they take him to the king and says, Your Highness, we found it. They give him the sack of etrogim. The king eats it. He's cured. The king says, take that sack, empty it of the etrogim, and fill it up with golden coins. Golden dinarim. Dinarim is each dinar is 4.8 grams of gold. In today's value of gold, $1,900 per ounce. Each dinar is about uh, $320. 
But in that day's money, in a place where there's poverty everywhere with the exception of the king that's rich, the whole sack is full of dinarim. The king says to the guy, anything else I can do for you? Ask me for whatever you want. He says, yes, your highness. I want you to tell those people that took my house to give me back my house. I'll pay the money. I'll pay the money that I owe, the debt that I borrowed. But tell them to give my, my, my house back. And that people are notified that I'm coming and they all welcome me when I come back to the city. The, dear, the, the king says, you got it. They put him back on a ship. They make an announcement in the city. The friend of the king is coming. The whole city is obligated to come welcome him. Of course, they hear the name of this. Wow, friend of the king. Even his brother, the stingy Scrooge over there, he comes with his kids. Everybody's on the way. His brother's on the way with, with his kids. A wave comes and kills his brother and his kids. So now he comes home. Everybody says, hey, Bikidush Hashem. This Jew that gave tzedakah, HaKadosh Baruch reward him. Look how he rewarded him from, from the, from the Etrogim, became a multimillionaire. And on top of it, on top of it, he also inherits his brother's house because his brother and his kids died. Why? The Pasuk says in Job, HaKadosh Baruch pays you based on what you did. He did good, but not just good standard of what he's obligated to do. He did above the standard. Meaning, you gave tzedakah that standard. You're supposed to do that. It's like breathing. But you didn't just give, you didn't just give what you were supposed to. You gave everything. And on top of it, the last $10 that you had, you gave even that. You like my mitzvot so much. You like my Torah so much that even that you gave. You do something like that, HaKadosh Baruch says, I pay you cash. But not only that, I make sure the whole world knows it. And the Rasha that wanted to keep everything for himself, he'll end up with nothing. The brother that wanted to keep everything for himself, HaKadosh Baruch says, everything he has, I'm going to give it to you. Why? That's what the Pasuk means. Why did Moshe Rabbeinu merit to be Moshe Rabbeinu? The very same Midrash says, Moshe Rabbeinu was in the house of Paro, a prince. But he knew that his brothers, Am Yisrael, are over there suffering. He went and saw everyone. And he sees that the man is carrying a lot of stuff, but it's enough for a woman to carry, though. He doesn't have to carry. The woman is carrying what the man is supposed to carry. The old man is carrying what the young man is supposed to carry. And the young man is carrying what the old man is supposed to carry. Meaning everything is opposite because why? Because one of his main things was to try to destroy the morale of Am Yisrael. Not just to destroy the people, make them slaves. Destroy their morale. So he made the women do the men's jobs. The men do the uh, women's jobs and so on and so forth. So Moshe Rabbeinu took it upon himself to reorganize it. Convinced Paro, no, it's for the betterment of, of Egypt... To give the man this weight and the woman that weight. Why? Because if they carry the right weight, they'll work better for you. He convinced him to do it, but in reality, what was his purpose? He loved his brothers and sisters. HaKadosh Baruch says, You cared enough to put yourself in danger 
just because you saw your brothers and sisters carrying a little too much, carrying a little too little, you cared enough in your life, just like you, evalu- you evaluated the weight that they were carrying, in your life you're also going to fulfill the mitzvah of, evaluate, of teaching Am Yisrael, the Torah, that talks about in Parashat Bechukotai, of the value of a human being, the value of a soul. You could have simply said, oh, listen, the poor fortune, we'll pray. You know, somebody, oh, somebody said, okay, we'll pray for him. Refua Shlema. Refua Shlema. Or you could cry. Parents ask me sometimes, Rabbi, how could I make sure that my kid's going to be Tamit Chacham? Cry. A lot. Okay, okay, maybe not Tamit Chacham, like Rabbi Vadia or something, but... Just be a frum. So he marries a Jew. I said, cry, cry. For sure cry. A lot. Pray? Yeah, while you pray, cry. And learn a lot of Torah. And be a tzaddik. And serve a kadosh b'chu non-stop. And cry a lot, a lot, a lot. Over your kids. Why? That's it. That's all you can do. Yeah, but maybe if I get this. No, no, no. Cry over your kids. And maybe something's going to come out of them. Maybe something's going to come out of them. People sometimes see different rabbis that all of a sudden psh, become write books, this, that, the other thing. What do you think? It just came out of nowhere. You think that his parents didn't cry over him? You think that his rabbi didn't fast over him? Didn't cry over him? If there's no mesirut nefesh before, there's, no, there's nothing, nothing comes out. Kadosh Baruch says, if you do it, he'll open up the gates of heaven. You'll have a blessed world. You'll have a world where literally there is only blessing. And instead of focusing on what everybody else is doing, focus on what the Torah says. The Mishnah in Avot says, in chapter 1, Mishnah number 7, Natayah Arbeli says, distance yourself from a bad neighbor, don't attach yourself to an evil person, and don't despair of retribution. A person thinks that he could live wherever he wants. Torah says, it's not true. Why? Because even if you're righteous, and your neighbor is wicked, and he says Lashon and she says Lashon and the Kohen sees that there's tzarat on the wall of the wicked guy's side, you still have to break that wall, even if that wall is connected to you. There were certain people that were righteous. Yoshafat, the king, was a righteous king, but he made a good partnership with Achav, the Rasha. HaKadosh Baruch Hu sent the prophet to Yoshafat, says, because you befriended Hashem's enemies, the wrath will come upon you too. You can't be friends with just anybody. You can't be neighbors with just anybody. person needs to know that you're in this world and the Yetzirah is going to try to use every single tool possible to get in your way. If you don't give your kids the right education, they're going to get the wrong education. If you're not generous with your wife to be modest, she won't be modest. If you don't push your husband to go learn Torah, he'll go watch TV instead. 
if you don't work on Torah values in your house, adultery and divorce and all types of tragedies are just around the clock, are just around the, around the corner. Why? Look at society. It's not a curse, it's a reality. A life without a Kadosh Baruch Hu is a life of tragedy. Look at anybody you see. Look at anyone out there. And you look at their real life. Doesn't matter who. If they don't have a Kadosh Baruch Hu from our Torah as a permanent fixture in their life every single day, they don't pray to a Kadosh Baruch Hu, they don't learn a little bit of Torah every single day, they don't serve a Kadosh Baruch Hu, you look at their life, you see the tragedies. One tragedy after another. Divorce, uh, diseases, poverty, misery, and so on, and no hope. Whereas, the person that's serving a Kadosh Baruch Hu may have troubles, but they know exactly what's the reason. Those troubles have a name, have a price, have a value next to them. The one that doesn't have a Kadosh Baruch Hu in his life has no idea why this is happening to him. She has no idea why this is happening to her. In fact, sometimes a person will look at the wicked people and say, wait a minute, how come this wicked guy just made a lot of money? Yeah, but you realize he got a divorce too, right? Yeah, but he has a lot of money. I'll take the divorce with the money. <laughs> Trust me, if you went through a divorce, you'd give him the money too, instead. People don't realize. Don't realize the grass always looks greener on the other side. But don't look at anyone that doesn't have a sham in their life as a permanent fixture and be jealous of them. Why? It's very simple. You keep Shabbat. You keep family purity. You put on tefillin every day. You learn Torah every day. You do basic things that what HaKadosh Baruch Hu says every day. You have a share of the world to come. He or she that's walking around immodest, that's desecrating Hashem's name, they have no share of the world to come. They're going to gain home forever. What are you jealous of? What, the plastic they have on their hand? Or the garbage pail that they're driving that has a sign of a Ferrari on it? What are you jealous of? They're going to gain them forever. What are you jealous of? It's like being jealous of somebody in the Holocaust. You ever see anybody says, Oh yeah, I can't wait for the next Holocaust. Unless you're a Nazi criminal, no one says that. To be jealous of somebody that lives a life that's against God is like being jealous of somebody that's going to the Holocaust. That's what it is. But people don't think that way. They think, yeah, but I'll take the good, but not the bad. It doesn't work that way. Why? Because who says, don't despair of the retribution. They're doing bad things. Because who doesn't punish right away. He waits and waits and waits. In his sefer, Anaf Etz Avot, he brings a story, two stories of the Chafetz Chaim. He says the Chafetz Chaim witnessed these stories with his own eyes. There was one time, a widow with a couple of small kids. She couldn't pay rent. The house she was living in. And she told the, uh, the Balabite, I'm sorry, I don't have the money. No money? Get out. Wow, I, need, I don't have anywhere else to go. I don't care. You have to get out. But I can't get out. I don't have any place to go. I've got little kids. Listen, you have to get out. She, she's not getting out. What does he do? He goes on the roof and he takes off the tiles. So that way the rain and the snow starts pouring into the, into the house. Everybody was poor at the time. No one could really do anything other than scream at the guy, you're a shah. 
And the woman can't stay there anymore because the snow is going on her kids. The, the, what did she do? She just went and found a cave. She found a cave, took her little kids there, and they lived in a cave to survive the winter. Chafetz Chaim that saw this says, I wondered when a Kadosh Baruch Hu is going to pay this guy back. And I followed the story. I followed it and followed it. And 10 years passed. This guy did not do tshuva. And one day, a dog bit him. The dog had rabies. He got rabies. The agony that he had was unbearable. The pain that he had from the rabies was unbearable. He started losing his mind to the point where he started barking like a dog until the day he died. HaKadosh Baruch Hu says, you throw out my children like dogs outside, you'll turn into a dog. And everyone's going to watch. Fitz Chaim saw this with his own eyes. At the time of Nikolai, the Caesar, Imach Shimov that did all types of decrees against Am Yisrael. He decreed that all the Jewish kids have to be taken out of the Cheder and enlisted into his army. 25 year sentences. One butcher, instead of giving them his kid, he took his neighbor's kid. Good yeshiva bachu, little kid. He said, "That's my son. Yeah, yeah, you could take him. Give him to the Caesar. Power to the people." Hamas murdered the kid. This was found out. You took another Jewish kid, and you gave it to them instead of your to save your kid's life. Chafetz Chaim says, "I wanted to see when a kadosh bachu is going to pay him. I want to see it because that's what it says in the Torah." Rewards the righteous and punishes the wicked. I want to see when it's going to happen. Chafetz Chaim says, a matter of just a couple of years passed, the son that he saved in order to kill another Jew, or by killing another Jew, got some strange blood poisoning and died. But since the poisoning was so scary for everybody, even the Chivra Kadisha was not willing to bury the boy. The father had to bury his own kid by himself because everyone else was scared. You saved him, now you have him that way. Well, you think that your kid is better than some other kid? What, his blood is redder than his? It doesn't work that way. HaKadosh Baruch Hu promises reward and punish. It comes together, it's a package deal. Never be jealous of somebody that looks like they're winning while they're going against the Kadosh Baruch Hu. Because when a Kadosh Baruch Hu brings the wrath on them, no one can save them, not even their own family. On the other hand, the beautiful thing is, a Kadosh Baruch Hu doesn't want to punish. It's just the rule that he has for his own creation. He has to. When he punishes us, the biggest thing that he punishes us for is that we did not allow him to give us good. He is good. He created us to give us good. But he can only give us good if we do good. When we do bad, we're in essence forcing him not to give us the good that he wants to give us and it's the reason why he created us. 
Which means that when we do good, Akadosh Baruch Hu is the first one, can't wait to give us all the blessings in the Torah. And then you're going to say, wait a minute, if he really wants to give me good, then how come he just not give him to me? Give me, no, yalla. Marah Masechet Shabbat. End of the Masechet. Has an extraordinary famous story of Yosef Mukir Shabbat. Yosef Mukir Shabbat was not rich, but he used all of his money, all of his resources, all of his energy to sanctify Shabbat. The Shabbat at Yosef's house was unbelievable. Rest of the week, barely surviving. Shabbat, the whole week is, exists just for Shabbat. HaKadosh Baruch Hu saw how much Yosef loved Shabbat, he wanted to give him a gift. A little gift. And there was a guy that was very rich, some goy. And he went to all types of uh, witchcraft people, and they told him, we see in the stars that some guy named Yosef is going to take all your money, all your houses, all the land, everything you have. This guy got scared. He said, no, can't, no way. Sold everything he has, took all the money, bought a big diamond. And put it, sewed it inside his turban. He said, now he can't take my hat. Now he can't take my money. It's all in my head. Who has going to do? He has to kill me to take it. One day he's walking on his land. A strong wind comes. The turban flies off into the water. He tries to go chase it. He can't chase it. A big fish comes out of the water, swallows the turban with the diamond in it. Hundred million dollars inside a little inside a fish. And he flies away. One day, a fisherman fishes the fish. Huge fish. Brings it to the market. Happens to be Friday. Happens to be 15 minutes after the market closed. Nobody's there to buy. But I have this big fish. We don't have refrigerators in those days. It's 2,000 years ago. I need to sell this fish. It's fresh, big, huge. Hey, listen, it's a huge fish. Only person that would buy it at this time. Maybe you can go to Yosef Mukir Shabbat. Where does he live? He lives in that address. This fisherman takes this fish, runs to Yosef Mukir Shabbat's house. Yosef sees it. Ooh, that's a big fish. Wow. But you know, it's almost, almost Shabbat. You know, we, we don't have that much time. So, you want the fish or no? How much? Ten coins. Ten coins? Yeah. It's a big fish. It's all the money I have. But it's worth it for Shabbat. You didn't have fish? You had fish already. He cooked already. But this is a bigger fish. It's more delicious fish. It's fresh fish. It's more honor for Shabbat fish. Everything I have, you go for the fish. Thank you for bringing it to me. Now, if Yosef would have said, you know what, I already made fish. If I take the fish now into the kitchen and I open up the fish and the smell comes out, my wife is going to make me into a fish. <laughs> open up the fish on Shabbat. An hour before Shabbat, your wife is going to make you into a fish. If you said, you know what, I'm not, maybe you can go with my neighbor. Go to my neighbor. I think he's not Jewish. Give it to him. What would happen? The neighbor would have got the fish. And the diamond inside him. Yosef opens the fish and sees a diamond. And says, Abba gave me a present. Abba gave me a present. Why? Because you love Shabbat. You love a Kadosh Baruch Hu. You love his Torah. Kadosh Baruch Hu sends you presents. 
When? When he decides to give you the present according to his time. His time is not always according to our time. So the question is that we asked, why didn't he just give him a, you know, money in a different way? Why does it have to all be with all this whole story with the fish? The fish has to swallow the hat, and then you have to open up, and the, and, and the diamond, and what? Just somehow, the diamond appears under his chair. Like, why does it have to do all this story? Same thing with, why did HaKadosh Baruch have to put Moshe Rabbeinu through all he went through for 80 years before he made him into Moshe Rabbeinu? The same thing with our story from the Midrash of why did the guy had to lose all of his money in the house and their togim and everything else before HaKadosh Baruch Hu gave him. Why? What's the whole process for? Now the Fine says, it's very simple. Remember when we read in the Zohar an hour ago, it says that when a person makes a sin, what happens? He creates a mashchit, creates a demon, and that demon beats him up. That demon gives him agony, it gives him anxiety, gives him money loss, gives him health problems, gives him this, gives him that, nightmare. But guess what? It also happens in a positive way. When he does a mitzvah and he says, Shema Yisrael, guess what? It's a little Shema Yisrael angel next to you now. And after that, he goes to work, but before he goes to work, he says, you know what, I gotta go to the bathroom. Why? Because I'm a human being. And he goes to the bathroom, and he comes out of the bathroom, and unlike the animals in the world, he says a blessing. Thank you, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, for making everything work. And he says that Hashem Yatsar, and guess what? As soon as he says that Hashem Yatsar blessing, another angel is right next to him. Who's the angel? Hashem Yatsar angel. And after that, he's going to go to work, but he doesn't live five minutes from his, from his, from his job. He has to go 35 miles away. It's a different city. So you know what he does? As soon as he crosses the border of the city, he says the blessings of, of, of protection on the way. Why? You're not promised to get there. You're not promised to come back. But if I do a blessing, then I have a, I have a, special, I have a special angel that's going to protect me the whole way. So as soon as he finishes the blessing, guess what? There's another angel next to him. Another angel. The tefillat aderech angel. And then when he gets to work, he says, you know what? I'm hungry. I'm going to eat something. What did my wife give me? Oh, she gave me a sandwich. It's bread. Gotta do nothing the dime. So he washes his hand, three on one hand, three on one hand, and he says the blessing. And guess what? He has an angel. And it's like a dime angel, right next to him. Cute one. Strong, too. And after that, he says the blessing of what? The bread. Oh, that's a really strong angel. And he's right next to him. And every one of these angels, every single day, they go up to Akadosh Baruch Hu and say, Akadosh Baruch Hu. I am a witness that this person is righteous because he created me or else I wouldn't exist. I am the angel that he created when he said Tefillat Aderich. I am the angel that he created when he put on Tefillin. I am the angel that he created when he kept Shabbat. I am the angel that he, that he created when he watched his eyes and he didn't look at that woman. I am the angel that he created when he was with his wife in a kosher way. I am the angel that he created when he gave Tzedakah. So Yalla Kadosh Baruch give him! A little bit more. A little bit more. And every day more angels that he creates go up to Shemaim and say, No, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, give him, give him, give him. HaKadosh Baruch Hu says, Not yet. Not yet. And little by little, he makes more mitzvot. 
and more mitzvot and more power is prosecuting for him. More strength in Shemaim is prosecuting for him, is fighting for him in Shemaim. Hashem, he's been waiting for a zivug for 10 years. Hashem, she's been waiting for refua shlama for five years. Hashem, this couple's been waiting for a baby, baby for 10 years. Hashem, this couple, this family needs parnasah for 20 years already. Hashem, this guy's learning Torah and doesn't understand anything for 15 years. Hashem, this person wants to serve you and he just doesn't know how to, please. And every day, they go fight for this guy, for this girl. And HaKadosh Baruch says, then one day, he only has $10 left. And he's had it. He lost his house. His wife doesn't want to talk to him. It's tough, but he still loves Hashem. An opportunity. He could buy himself lunch, or he can give the $10 for some poor person that doesn't have any way to make money because he doesn't have legs, or he doesn't have arms, or he doesn't have a job, or he doesn't have any hope. He says, you know what? I'm going to give him the $10. Or he says, you know what? I already ate breakfast. I don't need to eat lunch. Let me put that $10 to give it to a Torah organization. Maybe they'll learn more Torah in my, in my neighborhood. And that $10 creates an angel. And that angel goes up to Shemaim and flexes his muscles. He says, I was created with his last $10. Can you give him? And Hashem says, now I can give him. And then the Shefa comes. And then all of a sudden, his wife that cannot have a baby, because the doctor said, she can't have a baby. She's pregnant. And all of a sudden, the job that says you're going to be fired at the end of the month, says, by the way, we have a subsidiary that's looking for your position, and in fact, they're going to pay you 70% more than what you were making here. So you're fired, but over there you're hired with a 70% raise. And all of a sudden, the doctors that looked at him and said, this guy only has two weeks to live. The doctors die, but he lives another 70 years. Why? Simple. Just like the Rasha creates angels that go against him, the tzaddik, creates angels that go for him. The question is, is he going to give his last $10? Is he going to do that last mitzvah when it's really, really hard? He had a tough day. He doesn't feel like praying. He had a tough day. He doesn't want to give anybody. He had a tough day. He wants to go to sleep. He doesn't want to learn. And guess what? That's the mitzvah you need. That's that last one. When you're about to throw up everything already, you've had it with everything, that's the one of those and if you say, you know what, I've had enough, I don't want it. Okay, so the neighbor gets the fish. The neighbor gets the fish. If Yosef Sadiq would have gotten depressed for being in a jail, a hole in the bottom of the earth, full of filth, full of criminals, full of garbage, he would have gotten depressed. And when those two Egyptians came to him and said, listen, we're upset because we don't know what happened in our dream. If Yosef HaTzadik would have been sad even about being in prison, which is perfectly justifiable, he wouldn't have had the prophecy to allow him to interpret their dream. And guess what? He would have died in jail. He would have died in jail. 
instead of becoming the viceroy of Egypt. If Moshe Rabbeinu would have seen Am Yisrael over there carrying what they're carrying, he says, listen, I'll pray for you guys. I'm gonna, but I'm going to pray in the air conditioner because it's hot out here, Egypt. Moshe Rabbeinu would have been somebody that lived that you would have never heard of. All of the salvations that each and every single one of us are living because of came at a moment where it was too much. But somebody said, I want it, I want it. What do you mean? But you're the one that's struggling the most. Exactly, I want it, I want it. HaKadosh Baruch Hu says, you want it? I want you. Why did Shaul HaMelech get chosen to be the first king that Am Yisrael had? Simple. Am Yisrael would bring the Aron HaKodesh to every war. They would bring the Aron HaKodesh with the Luchot HaBrit, with the Ten Commandments in it. They went to war against the Philistines. And this time the Philistines were winning. That was according to Torah, was a Jew. His, his mother was Orpah, Ruth's sister. Both of them converted. Goliath was a Jew. So join the Philistines. Just like many terrorists that are Palestinians today don't even realize they're Jewish. This Goliath took the Aron HaKodesh. Am Yisrael is looking, the Aron HaKodesh was taken. What are we going to do? No one could do anything. But this little young man named Shaul couldn't live with himself. What? This filthy disgrace of a human being is going to open the Aron HaKodesh and take the Luchot of Lid out? No way. He runs into the battle knowing he's going to die. Not thinking he's going to die. Knowing he's going to die. He runs into the battle, goes to the Aron HaKodesh, opens up the Aron HaKodesh, takes the Luchot Abrit that are 700 pounds, meaning you have a miracle here. Takes them out and starts running. Goliath that knew that the most holy thing that Am Yisrael has was the Luchot Abrit, commands the entire army of the Philistines, stop what you're doing, go chase him until you kill him. They put wanted statements, wanted posters everywhere. With Shaul's face on it. How long did they chase him? 60 mil. 60 miles. 60 miles they're chasing Shaul. HaKadosh Baruch Hu says to Shaul, why'd you do it? There's no reason for you to do it. Am Yisrael has their responsibility. The army has their responsibility. There's no commandment that you have to go do that, but you did. Your life, you cared for my honor. In your life, you're going to be the first king. Each and every single one of us can be a king. But king comes at a price. Queen comes at a price. It's not just the standard, I'm going to keep mitzvot, I'm going to be a decent human being, I won't shoot up a school. Yeah, thank you. It's that last one, that last bit, when you don't feel like it anymore, that day that you woke up on the left side of the bed and you don't feel like getting out, that day that you don't feel like praying, that day that you don't feel like giving, don't think about 
what the wicked people are doing. Think about what those righteous people are doing. And decide which one do you want to be. When you realize that the wicked, what their end is, and the righteous, what their end is, makes the decision a little easier. Especially when you realize the righteous eventually becomes the king. The righteous eventually becomes the queen. The reward comes to them. The wicked cry for them. Because if they don't cry for themselves and get themselves out of it, the Holocaust is coming, Hashem Ishmael. Not because HaKadosh Baruch Hu likes to punish, but simply, that's what he said he's going to do. There's a rule. We want to be the influence to ourselves, to our children, to our community. But it starts with ourselves. If you're zealous for mitzvot, if you're zealous for Hashem, you're zealous for His Torah, all of a sudden there's an additional divine assistance that HaKadosh Baruch Hu is going to give you to fulfill the entire Torah. Rabbi Chaim Yivolozhin says that when a person commits to making a certain mitzvah, HaKadosh Baruch Hu gives him the strength to do it. Before he committed to watching his eyes, he said, I don't have the strength to do it. Before he committed to give ma'asel, he said, I can't do it. Before he committed, I'm going to get married with the righteous girl, the next righteous girl. I don't care, looks, don't looks. I'm, as long as she's human, decent looking, she doesn't have to be Malkata Yofi with all these crazy standards people have. I want to get married, build a bite Ne'eman Mi Yisrael. I want to have a righteous wife that I'm going to grow a family with. The, the second he decides to truly get married, HaKadosh Baruch Hu gives him the strength to do it. But before that, I don't ever see myself getting married. Before he decides he's going to have kids, he never saw himself having kids. Before she decided to take on the mitzvah of being modest, she never saw herself wearing such dresses. But the second you decided, HaKadosh Baruch Hu gives you the strength for it. And the beauty is, so long as you continue, the reward will eventually come. Guaranteed. Stick with it. The salvation eventually comes. And typically, if our history repeats itself like it always does, it's usually at that last moment when you don't feel like doing it anymore. That's the mitzvah that HaKadosh Baruch Hu has been waiting for. That's that one that pushes over everything. That last one that pushes over everything, that turned Yosef into the viceroy, that turned this person into the richest man in town, told Moshe Rabbeinu into Moshe Rabbeinu, that's the one that Kadosh Baruch Hu wants. Don't give that one up. And there's other Shem. We all succeed in serving HaKadosh Baruch Hu each and every single day, learning His Torah, doing His mitzvot, helping Klal Yisrael save themselves, helping Klal Yisrael run away from this world of lies that's killing itself. There's really no glory in being secular anymore. It's a disastrous world. The only people that exist are, that are happy are people that are glued to the Torah. Torah is much easier to convince people to do it. You don't have to convince them with reward anymore. Simply convince them. What do you have comparing it to? This rabbi, look at his life, look at his kids. This multi-billionaire, look at his life, look at his kids. The rabbi's kids say thank you, say I love you, say I'm sorry, they have manners, they have respect. This billionaire's kids... They call their father by the first name. They curse each other out. They're cheating on their wives and each other and this and that. And they're suing each other in court. 
Yeah, they have money, but with that kind of money, rather give the money instead of have the curse. And that's the reality. When you see the lives of the righteous people, that's a life to admire. That's a life to aspire to. Torah is the way to get it. Be'ezat Hashem, each and every single one of us, never give up. Always push. Always push yourself to the max. Because that is what you came to this world to do. With that being said, the Chabod, whoever wants to ask any questions. Yes. How are you? Job, yes. Well, they, the uh, Elihu was the righteous one. He's not one of those that you're mentioning. He was the righteous one. He was the one that had the, uh, you know, what the Torah says, and uh, in essence a prophecy. Uh, and he rebuked Job for questioning God uh, for, uh, you, know, the, uh, the, uh, you know, what he was going through. And uh, while the other, uh, the other so-called friends that uh, Job had not only abandoned him, but they actually, uh, uh, you know, went, told them in essence to go against God. They told them to uh, do things that uh, were not necessarily going to help them. Uh, and uh, in fact, they themselves were doing wicked things. So they got rebuked for the sins that they made, whereas uh, uh, Job also got rebuked for the sin, if you will, that he made. He didn't make a whole group of sins. He was tested. He partially failed the test. For questioning a Kadosh Baruch Hu, but it wasn't a complete failure. He didn't turn into a heretic or a uh, or an idol worshiper. It's just that uh, he he questioned it. So in his level, it was considered a sin. Uh, the average person, uh, you know, is questioning Hashem even for no tests. But the other, those other friends, they were actually wicked people. They uh, they abandoned him. They uh, they didn't support him in any way, shape, or form, and that's why uh, uh, they had to bring a sacrifice, as in essence, to uh, to start their tshuva also, uh, which is becomes much easier once you see how Hashem transformed Job's life, uh, where you know he healed him miraculously, and you know he got uh, married again, he had kids, he gave his wealth back, and so on and so forth. So. This is actually one of the things that I tell people that ask me about, you know, when, when you start doing tshuva or you convert to Judaism and the rest of your family doesn't. You know, parents, friends, you know, brothers, sisters, they don't. And you don't want to necessarily, you know, uh, uh, disassociate from them. But uh, at the same token, you can't associate with them the same way. You know, you can't continue going to baseball games with them. You can't dress like them anymore. You can't swim in the pool with them anymore. You can't do a lot of things that... You know, you used to do. So now, when you invite, them, when you go to their places, you can't. You know, they're going to continue living their life. So, generally speaking, it's best to invite them into your home versus you going to theirs because your home is under your control. Now, as long as you don't change yourself. Now, 
they're not necessarily going to change themselves right away just because they're coming to your house. They're still going to wear their short sleeves and their short dress and their short whatever, and they're going to still you know, talk the same way that they talk. And initially, they're not going to change themselves at all. And in fact, they're going to question you of you know, why you're doing it. Because initially, in the mind of people, when somebody becomes religious, it looks like a phase. It looks like you're going through something. It looks like there's something wrong with you. Or there's, like, they don't really understand why would you do it because they haven't done it because they don't really, they've never investigated it enough to see any value in it. Uh, and therefore, they have no idea why you would do it. So they think that maybe you're going through a phase and therefore, you're not really able to make any impact on them, no matter what you say to them. You could tell them the truth, you could tell them stories. Generally, in the beginning, you can't help people. But then, when they see that your life continues, and you continue to be more and more religious, closer and closer to Hashem, and they start seeing that this is not only not a phase, but they actually start seeing that your life is transforming and improving. You're getting married, even though you're young. You're having kids, even though you're young. You, you still have an income. You're still alive. You're still, you know, things are getting better for you, and you're progressing and you look happy, and you have blessings in your life. And they, five years have passed, ten years have passed, you're already with two, three, four, five kids, a wife or a husband, you know, you're still alive, you're still, everything is good. And they, same exact person that they were ten years ago, just with a few more gray hairs, a little bit more money or less money in the bank, but nothing else changed. You know, it's, if they were single, they're probably still single. If they were married, they still want to get divorced, just like they wanted to get divorced 10 years ago. And, uh, and, and, and generally speaking, their life typically deteriorated over those 10 years. But they see that yours improved. And what ends up happening is that they start becoming jealous, but not necessarily in a negative way. Sometimes that jealousy could lead a person to actually want to do what you've wanted them to do already for 10 years. But now they're finally open to it. Because number one, they see that you're no longer going through a phase. It's real. And they see that something's coming out of it. That's why, so long as you stay strong, you don't necessarily need to force Torah down the throat of people to convince them that it's the truth. You could try to, to help them. You could try to teach them. You could try to uh, uh, you know, assist them to get closer to Hashem. But don't get upset if they don't see what you see yet. They simply don't have the tools yet. They have a lot of yetzerah. They have a lot of things distracting them. There's a lot of things confusing them. They simply don't see it yet. Just like you didn't see it for all of your life until a day that you did. So all you got to do is just keep chipping at it. Keep pushing against that klipa that they have. Keep pushing against. Keep you know, creating more good angels that are fighting for them. And if you really love them, cry over them. Do mitzvot on their behalf. You know, try to convince them to do mitzvot that they're willing to do. If they have money, try to convince them to donate. If they have a, uh, uh, you know, interest in going to shul, try to pick them up to, to, to go with them. If they uh, have some free time, put on a video without even asking them if they want to watch it. Just put it on, just watch it, it's interesting. And watch it together with them. Try to push them into it a little bit, but without necessarily getting upset if they don't want to follow along. And eventually, if they, the combination of all of this will help them actually transition little by little and sometimes you'll actually catch you know somebody and you'll see a person that transforms completely
You'll see a person that when you met him, you know, he looked like a rock star, and today uh, he looks like a rabbi. And it's unbelievable to see Baalei Tshuva is one of the, uh, and how they change, how they transform. Uh, is one of the greatest pleasures that you can see in life. Because I remember, you know, students that I had seven, ten years ago, whenever it was, uh, and then you see how they progress. And it's not necessarily just the beard getting bigger or small. It's not that. It's, you literally see their face get softer. You see their lives. You see everything transition. And then all of the people, the naysayers that, that were around them, that told them they're crazy for doing it, all of them got worse. Unless they did tshuva also, all of them, their lives got worse. You know, their, their problems stayed the same or got worse. Their money issues, their marriage issues, their parenting issues. Like everything for all of those people that went against it, everything got worse for them. But that one diamond, everything got better. They bloomed. They got married. They have kids. They have this. They have that. And it, it, it worked out. And it's one of the most beautiful things in the world to see because you literally see this, this amazing miracle. Miracle in front of your eyes because it's like literally having a, a, a war. Putin and, 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 you know, and his Russia against, uh, against uh, the, uh, the other uh, comedian and his Ukraine, okay? And there's bombs everywhere and there's mines everywhere and there's tanks everywhere and there's threats of an atomic bomb everywhere. And in all of this disaster, all of a sudden, a woman gives a birth to a, a righteous baby. Like right in the middle, there's like wars everywhere, there's bombs everywhere. But then you hear this like beautiful cry of a little baby born right now. And it's like, wow. That's what a Baal Shuvah is. It's the most amazing thing in the world, especially as you see them advance. As you see them progress and, 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 and build. But, you know, sometimes people are afraid to, to, to grow because they think that if I grow, then I'm abandoning everybody or they're not going to like me anymore, or uh, all types of other things. And it's not true. The, the closer you get to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, the more you're actually giving the world around you the chizuk, that what you're doing is real, and it's right. Because it's only a matter of time before they see that the path of Torah that you're on is the right path. There is no way for them to ever see their path is right permanently. Maybe now they see it because maybe they have more money than you right now or they look like they're happier than you and you're going through a transition. But just give it time. Give it time and you'll see how your life progresses and your, their life degresses. And simply, you'll see, eventually, they'll start respecting you for it. In the beginning, they were making fun of you, saying, oh, who died? Why are you wearing a kippah? Well, what happened? Were you going to a funeral? Why are you wearing all, that, all those skirts and clothes? Why are you wearing so much stuff? Like, they ask you stupid questions, they make fun of you, they bust your chops. Later on, well, thank you, I love you, appreciate it, rabbi, nah, nah, all this, all this different things. No, no, I'm just, I'm just me. No, no, no. You're, all of a sudden you're holy. Why? They saw. Things that you even didn't see. But you have to stick to it. If you play both fields, one day you're like them, another day you're like the way you're supposed to be. No, no one's going to follow you. And even the, 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 your own world is not going to develop. And that's sometimes what happens with people. They try to, uh, they try to you know, fit in. And that unfortunately sometimes happens with rabbis. They try to fit in with people. You know, high five, what's up, let's watch basketball together. Nobody ever gets closer to the Torah because their rabbi is watching basketball with them. 
Now, yes, you'll say, yeah, but there are some big rabbis that took their family to a baseball game. No problem. But I bet you the family was watching the baseball and the rabbi was learning at the baseball stadium. Why? Because he didn't show them that he's interested in it. He's willing to appease them to do something that's kosher. No problem. But I'm not going to be like you. I'll be with you, but I'm not going to be like you. But once you start being like them, then they don't, they don't they see like, okay, so if he's like me, then what I'm doing is fine. Then being me is fine. So that's, that's, where people, that's where people fail. The Mishnah in Avot says that Aaron HaKohen, Rodef Shalom, Oev Shalom, he chased peace, he loved peace, and he brought Am Yisrael to the Torah. Not he brought the Torah to Am Yisrael. What's the difference? The difference is that when you bring people to Torah, that means that you're going to sometimes lower the Torah to their standards. And that's not what you're supposed to do. You have to elevate them to the Torah standards. You have to elevate people to the Torah standards. Never say it's okay to drive on Shabbat. Even if he lives a thousand miles away, don't come to Shul then. Yeah, but then, then no one's going to help him. How do you know? What are you, God? What? You're the only one that Hashem can use to help this person do Shabbat. But that's the thing. that The, the, the people need to understand HaKadosh Baruch Hu you know, plays with this world like putty plays with this world like putty. He could change our own free choice if he wants to for all of us to become the greatest servants of Hashem. But he doesn't want it. He wants it to come up from us. So when a person sticks to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, that in itself becomes a Kiddush Hashem and that in itself becomes one of the best tools to convince the world around you that not only is your path right for you, but it's right for them too. The friends of Job tried to bring him even lower than, they, than he already was. They weren't trying to help him. Job was on a high, high level, extremely high level, was a very, very righteous person. But at a moment of, of, of the extraordinary test that he had, he questioned things a little bit too far. So HaKadosh Baruch sent them a few wicked people to try to take him lower, but one righteous person to show him the, 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 the reality. And which means that Job still had free choice. He could have stayed and gotten worse and worse with those people. Or he could have accepted the truth from Elihu, which he ended up doing, and that ended up bringing him all the salvation of him. If he would have said, you know what, you know, uh, I'm sticking with what I think, because I did the right thing, and it didn't work out, and even these guys are making fun of me, I'm going to just simply be like them. Guess what? You would have never heard about Job. You would have never gotten a, a cure. Nothing good would have happened. But because of that last moment, where it was the most difficult, he made the right decision, all of the blessings were, were opened after that. So that's... that's but, and now, because of that, because he made the right choice, that also gave those three others the open door that now they actually know that there is a right choice and it wasn't what they chose. So that actually even opened up the door for them. His tshuva opened up the door for them. Had he not done tshuva, he would have gone down the uh, tubes with them. They would have all gone to Gehenom forever. So now that he did tshuva, that ended up opening up the door for, for everybody. And that's, that's in essence one of the things that a person does when they stick with Hashem, they end up, they end up uh, becoming like a, a walking Kiddush Hashem. And people that know you and know what you've gone through and know how you're transitioning and know how dedicated you are, eventually will come around. Not everybody, but some people, they come around and they come around very, very strong. And it's amazing. You know, one of the best things to do, to, to see, 
is when you see that a, a couple, one person does tshuva, the other one not so much, but then eventually when the second person wakes up, sometimes they become stronger than the first one. Sometimes, you know, the, the husband does tshuva, the wife is not really interested, you know, some time can pass, eventually something wakes her up, some type of prayer, some type of uh, thing wakes her up, and she becomes, I don't know, like a tzaddikah, like uh, something unbelievable. And the guy, is, you know, he's, whoa, take it easy. He starts telling her to slow down. You know, but that's the beautiful thing, is that as long as you stick to the truth, you'll see that the world around you changes in a positive way. Yes, questions? So if it's a um, if it's reading chumash and it's commentary, uh, meaning trying to describe the uh, what what's happening behind the scenes, many times the uh, they don't contradict each other, but sometimes they do. Sometimes they do, uh, and since none of them were paskin lalacha, meaning you have no obligation to believe one over the other, it's it's open for you. Uh, and sometimes both are true, meaning this and this are words of the living God. That Akadosh Baruch Hu, when he uh, when he created the world, he, and he created the he created the world after he created the Torah. Uh, and it was the 974 uh, generations before he created the world. He created the Torah. Now, when he gave us the Torah, he gave those is in essence two parts. There's the uh, Torah that we got, which is the essence of the Torah, and then there's the real Torah. That is not, is not uh, something that we can handle in this world. Now, the essence of the Torah is, in essence, the, the rules of not just the storyline of what happened and, and the mitzvot of yes and no, do this and don't do this, but also the rules of how to paskin, how to conclude things from the, uh, the, the basic ground rules. So let's say, for example, there are certain ground rules for physics, there are certain ground rules for chemistry. There are certain ground rules for everything, for mathematics and so on. So needless to say, there are certain ground rules for the Torah itself, which is the book of creation. So those ground rules were given to Moshe Rabbeinu, and that's in essence how the rabbis uh, uh, paskin an actual and conclude an actual halacha today, to this day. They take those rules... And they, you know, they use those rules in order to decide what is the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do as far as how to act. Now, the, uh, uh, all of the halachot, as far as the basic rules, were already made and concluded already. Uh, and the last halacha is, is, is Rabbi Yosef Karo, that's the Shulchan Aruch. But what the poskim of today do is that they use those, uh, uh, what was the psak halacha, was the final uh, uh, conclusion. And use the rules that we have already from Mount Sinai in order to know how to apply it to today. Because today we have the things that we didn't have 500 years ago and 3,000 years ago, whether it be cars, electricity, uh, uh, you know, uh, cookers for your chulent, <laughs> all types of different uh, things, plumbing, all types of different things that we didn't have back then. So we need those same ground rules and also that final opinion uh, and in order to conclude. Now, Sometimes you're going to see that there are 
things that are, uh, are, are seem like they're wrong, but they're 100% right. Meaning, you'll have two things that uh, uh, have opposite meanings. One midrash says this, another midrash, another commentator says the exact opposite. Okay, for, you know, so for example, one uh, midrash says that uh, the amount of Jews that left Egypt, uh, you know, between the, uh, uh, the ages of uh, 20 and 60 men, between the age of 20 and 60, was let's say uh, 3 million. Uh, another one says it was more like 30 million. Another one says it was even more. Or let's say there's another midrash says that, uh, you know, the amount of uh, Egyptians that chased after uh, uh, the Jews uh, into, the, uh, uh, into the Sea of Reeds uh, was uh, also the same number, a few million, and one of them says it was 900 million. Now, technically, you can believe any one of those. Why? There is no halachic ramifications that are going to change your day-to-day life. So you could lean that way, you could lean that way. There are more people that believe one opinion than others sometimes, but generally there's no what's called nafkamin. I mean, there's no like difference whether you believe it's 3 million or 30 million. It doesn't change the Torah. Doesn't change anything. It's not going to change your day-to-day life. Doesn't mean that you have to keep Shabbat better or less. So sometimes there are two different opinions that's obvious, and you can believe what you want. Okay? Now, there are other times where there is a uh, different opinion, but there is a decision that what this is, that's what the Allah is. That is what it says. This is what it is. This is what you have to believe in. Even though the other sages that said a different opinion are also great, they're also amazing, they're also right most of the time everywhere else, but in this particular case, it was a psak halacha, that this is what the case is. Now, when it comes to the midrashim, there's a very, you know, there's a uh, general consensus of what the final conclusion is on, on everything, but there are certain variances in certain places. Where it gets really complicated is when it comes to halacha. Okay? When it comes to halacha, because when you, uh, when you look at, let's say, how you know, the poskim actually pask and halacha and decide the final conclusion, throughout all the generations, uh, you see, first of all, you see genius that's unlike any other. Like the smartest man on earth today, whoever he is, is like a, I don't know, uh, mentally deformed person next to any one of the sages you can pick from any generation, including our own. A- pick any smart person you want. And you compare him to a Rav Ovadia, to a Stipe Gaon, to a Rav Kanievsky, to, uh, to uh, uh, um, anyone, any one of the great sages. You compare the smartest person in the second world, Einstein. Multiplying by 10, he's like a retarded person next to one of these sages. Their brain do not work the same way. It's, it's unbelievable. But really the only way that a person can learn that wisdom is usually when you learn how they paskin in a responsa. When people say there are different insights of what happened here or the philosophical lesson you could learn from there, of course there's endless wisdom there. But when you see how they conclude what an alacha is and the whole process that they go through and how many things they review and investigate it's literally blows your mind away of how amazing they are. So, and how, like, it's just, it's brilliance that's unlike any other. It's, it's, they don't think like human beings. And the, the thing is, though, is that at times, you'll see two geniuses, two holy people, not only disagree, but disagree vehemently. Like, so much so that they're, like, say that the other person is so wrong that if you follow him, you're going to get a death penalty. 
like it's it's like they'll say things that are like strong. They you know when when they fight for for the truth, it's like they're fighting for their life. Now they'll still marry their kids to each other. They still love each other. But when they're fighting for the truth, because for them what they concluded using all of those uh, rules, this is it. There is no other, there is no green sky. It's blue. I see it. That's it. The other guy says, yes, it's blue, but it's light blue. And, or whatever, I'm giving you another, whatever other analogy. And for him, that's the only reality that exists. Now, generally speaking, there is the basic foundation that is the final conclusion. But there are times that you can rely on both. Even though, technically, one is right and one is wrong, according to our logic, but it's not. Sometimes, both are right. And if you go this way or you go that way, you have something to rely on. Other times, you cannot go with the other guy. Not because he's wrong, but because the, the majority of Chachamim concluded this way and that's it. Like, for example, there was a big machloket, a debate between Rabban Gamliel and Rabbi Eliezer ben Holkinos. Rabban Gamliel was the Nasi. He was the, uh, the, the, the prince, meaning over all of Am Yisrael, he is the final conclusion. Might as well be like a king, okay, of, of everybody. Rabbi Eliezer ben Holkinos was the Gdolado. He was the biggest rabbi in the world. Okay, so Rabban Gamliel is from the lineage of David Melech, And he's the Nasi. But Rabbi Eliezer ben Holkinos, he's a giant among giants. His Talmud, his student is Rabbi Akiva. And all of our Torah that we have today is from Rabbi Akiva. So just imagine who his rabbi is. They had a debate, and Rabbi Eliezer versus Rabban Gamliel and, his, and, his, uh, uh, and other, a few other sages that were on his side, against Rabbi Eliezer by himself. Rabbi Eliezer says one thing, they say something else. Rabbi Eliezer says, if I'm right, HaKadosh Baruch is going to split this tree in half. Now, as he finished the statement, HaKadosh Baruch split the tree. Now, if, 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 if we have a debate, and I say, if I'm right, HaKadosh Baruch is going to split a tree in half. And it's, he does it. Do you even argue with me anymore? Usually you stop, because trees don't just get split in half. But, Sage said, sorry, we don't learn from split trees. Rabbi Eliezer says, if I'm right, it's Shemaim, they know I'm right, right? If I'm right, the river is going to reverse. You know, it goes, it goes downhill, the river is going to start going upwards. Define nature. As he finishes the statement, the river starts going upwards. Not magic. And Shemaim is saying that he's right. It's not a magic trick. Shemaim. Sorry, we don't learn from rivers. Eventually, Rabbi Eliezer says, if I'm right, a bat kol, a heavenly voice, will come out and say, Rabbi Eliezer is right. You don't need anything else. It's like Mount Sinai. It's like Mount Sinai. As soon as he finishes, a bat kol, a heavenly voice, come out and says, why do you bother my son, Rabbi Eliezer? Don't you know that the halacha is like him? A heavenly voice comes out and says, Rabbi Eliezer is right. What do the sages say? Sorry, we do not learn Torah from a bat kol. The Torah is not, we don't learn the Torah this way. We have the Torah we got on Mount Sinai. We have rules. And we paskin according to those rules. Meaning that even if in Shamaim the law is A, but the sages use the rules and conclude B, they are right.
And in Shemaim, it changes to B. Or in Shemaim, it stays A, but it's only in Shemaim. But here it stays, it's B. They're right. So much so that HaKadosh Baruch says, my kids beat me. And he's happy. Why? Because they're using my rules. He gave them certain powers that they can do this. Last but not least, one, perhaps one of the most difficult things a person could encounter uh, in their learning is that there is a commandment that uh, are no longer applicable because the sages canceled them. Now, if a person reads the Torah like a Christian, it says, all right, you can't add, you can't subtract. Okay, if you can't, I can't subtract. How come the Christians don't keep Shabbat? How come the Christians don't eat kosher? <laughs> they, they like to say that we're wrong all the time, but in reality, their whole life is wrong. So, technically it says, don't add, don't subtract, right? But, it also says that HaKadosh Baruch instituted certain rules, and one of those rules is that he gave the sages the power to cancel a mitzvah. For the sake of the Torah. One example, one example is, Originally, HaKadosh Baruch Hu said that the Torah that he gave us is the written Torah, that you write, but the oral Torah stays oral. Don't write it. You aren't allowed to write it. You aren't allowed to write books for thousands of years. The entire oral Torah was one man to another, one rabbi to a student, one father to a son. Until the generation of Rebbe HaKadosh, Rabbi Udanasi, saw that the memory of people is deteriorating because their holiness is deteriorating because they're not observing, they're not studying, they're not doing what, what the previous generations were doing. And if things continue, the Torah will be forgotten. Because of that, he instituted this rule and canceled the mitzvah that prohibits us from writing the oral Torah. And now we have all of our oral Torah written. The Gemara, the Mishnah, Shuchan Aruch, all of that was not allowed to be written before, that, before Rabbi, uh, uh, Rabbi Udanasi instituted this rule. And there are other things, other examples of how certain mitzvot, the rabbis canceled, if you will. Uh, now, when a Mashiach comes, you know, things get turned on. But the point is, is that when you're doing something for the sake of saving the Torah, there are certain exceptions to the rule. So the more a person learns, the more they're going to realize that what they thought they knew, what they thought is the foundation, what they thought is an immovable wall, was really just a shade. And there's another layer, another layer, and another layer. And there's more and more. There's endless wisdom in the Torah. And many times when, when uh, you, uh, you see certain things at face value, uh, it seems one way. It seems one way, but usually when you uh, delve into it, you realize there's a lot more, uh, more, more uh, details to it. Uh, so so it, it, there isn't a rule of thumb that you always follow this side, or always follow that side. Even when it comes to, I'll give you another example. This may serve you purpose later on in your life when you start deep into the Gemara and you start going into paskening halacha. Uh, usually when they paskening halacha, you have to look at the Gemara, what the Gemara says. Now, you don't pasken from the Gemara, you pasken from Puskim. But the, the, they use the, the Gemara as the source. Now, when you look at the Gemara, typically the Gemara has, a, you know, a couple of opinions couple of opinions, and they don't, it doesn't always conclude that this is the final opinion. It doesn't always conclude like, oh, we have all these opinions, we are fighting back and forth, and A is right. It doesn't always end that way. Sometimes it ends with a teko, sometimes it ends with multiple opinions are right, 
and, and sometimes there's a machloket and so on. So now, sometimes there's even an answer where it says Eliyahu Navi has to give us the answer. Like there's, there's all types of uh, conclusions. Now, there are times where they will even tell you both options are right. Both options are right, even though they're different than each other. So a posek that's looking at this is going to say, okay, so which one do you pick? So some chachamim even wrote, says, yeah, well, typically, typically you pick the second opinion. If you have two opinions, you pick the second one. You pick the second one. Truth is, it's not true. Why? Many times it is the second, but if you look at the Rambam, there are times that he picks the first. And the Shulchan Aruch that's comprised of mostly Rambam means that also the Shulchan Aruch passes also the first answer. Meaning there is no rule of thumb, you always pick number two. Even though majority of the time you pick number two, it's not always. So that's the thing. So it's, it's a, the Torah is not, a, uh, it's not uh, you know, black or white. Uh, the Torah is uh, you know, many different layers of gray and black and white. And sometimes you'll have, even have something that is uh, completely an anomaly. A complete anomaly. And that's why it's very, very uh, uh, difficult to, uh, to get, let's say, for example, if there's, let's say, something new, it's not easy for, for you to say, go to a big rabbi and say, okay, can you give me a psak halacha and such and such? It's not easy. If he's a real, if he has yirat shamayim, it's not easy. Why? Because he has to toil for a long time to really conclude this is the truth and be willing to go to, uh, go, go to shamayim with this. You know, so it's, it's a, uh, there's a lot to it. But when you're dealing with the first layer of things, like the commentary of the verses, if... Uh, it wasn't concluded that this is it, and everything else is canceled out. You technically, it's open up for for you. And usually, what I found to be uh, what I found to be amazing is that usually, the more I learn it and other layers of it, the more I find out that eventually both are right, and I just couldn't see it. There was just certain things in between them connecting them that I simply couldn't see it how it could exist because you don't have the tools yet. To connect the two. So you figure this is A and this is C. You don't have a tools to, to see how A and C can connect. Later on you read more and then all of a sudden you have B and then B connects both of them. In a way that you, you just didn't have available to you. You have a new tool though. So that's the thing. So usually you'll see how everything connects. Uh, but again, even if it doesn't connect, even if something uh, sometimes will contradict each other, uh, the, uh, the sages teach us most important thing to know about Torah is if you don't understand it uh, or you see something that doesn't make sense uh, that the sages said it's not their lackings it's your lackings that means you haven't studied it uh, deep enough yet uh, so the more you study it the more you'll see uh, the more you see things clearer and clearer and clearer and Bezal Hashem see them as clear as day next question yes Howard So Rabbi Akiva uh, saw that uh, there was a guy named uh, Bar Kochba that had supernatural powers. By supernatural powers, uh, it wasn't uh, something that was debatable. Bar Kochba had a uh, superhuman strength that even the, uh, the Roman uh, uh, Empire 
knew that simply there's no way to kill this person. There's no way to kill this person. Uh, not by humans, not by weapons, not by anything. Simply they would throw the types of boulders they would throw to destroy entire walls. They would throw, he would catch them with one hand and throw it at them. Faster. Like something like unbelievable. In order to, uh, and he also had very powerful soldiers. That in order for a person to enlist into his army, that person had to be so strong that they would have to Initially, they had to go through a major pain. They would be, have to be willing to cut off their own thumb. But then the Chachamim said to Bar Kochba, well, how, how long are you going to cause all of our strong men to have uh, uh, defects? He said, okay, so you know, what, what should I do? He said, oh, have something else. Don't cause them, you know, cause the pain just to be a soldier. So he decided a new way to enlist to his army. You have to be strong enough to ride your horse and, take a, and grab a tree that's stuck to the ground, like a full tree, you know, 30 feet, grab it while you're riding a horse and, st- and take it out of the ground. Things that, to us, it's, forget about superhuman, it's, 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 it's something that's not normal. That's the type of strength that Bar Kokhba had and his soldiers had. So he had a lot of these things that uh, weren't something that you uh, see every day, to say the least. Uh, which, in itself... Uh, was a quality that the Mashiach would have because the Mashiach is supposed to go to war. Now, Rabbi Akiva also knew that every generation there is a, uh, there's a potential Mashiach. There's a potential Mashiach in every single generation. Kadosh uh, Baruch uh, wants to bring Mashiach. That's the climatic point of the world. And every generation, there's a, uh, there's a time, there's also auspicious times for the Mashiach to come. Not just auspicious times, uh, such as uh, specific uh, holidays uh, and specific days of the week, even, but also there are specific times of history where they were more auspicious, according to the calculations of of these same rules that I'm telling you, that the Chachamim have. So Rabbi Akiva, according to his calculations, according to what he saw with his own eyes, and he saw the the uh, destruction of the Beit Hamikdash when his friends cried, seeing the destruction of the Beit Mikdash, Rabbi Akiva laughed. They asked him, why are you laughing? He said, why are you crying? He said, if, uh, we're crying because the, you know, the Beit Mikdash was destroyed. The prophecy came true. He said, exactly, that's why I'm laughing. I'm laughing because just like the prophecy of the destruction came true, the other prophecy of the rebuilding will also come true. Okay, so Rabbi Akiva had an extraordinary way of looking at things in a very, very positive way. Needless to say, he learned it from Nahum uh, Gamzu, that was one of his rabbis. And uh, so he saw that this auspicious time for the rebuilding of the Bet HaMikdash. So everything fit. The Chachamim, on the other hand, many of them disagreed with him. That in itself, that in itself is a sign that he was, that, that was wrong. Because one of the things that uh, uh, will happen when the Mashiach is officially announced is everyone will agree. Even the enemies will agree that he's Mashiach. And they'll go against him, even though they know he's Mashiach. So that's, that's another thing. So either way, the, uh, uh, the, the rules that uh, he used were correct. The, the, you know, he had, you know, the things that he saw were correct. But there was a missing ingredient. A missing ingredient that uh, made it wrong. Now, this doesn't make... Uh, 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 you know, it doesn't contradict anything, uh, simply because if we were to see the same thing, 
we would also conclude the same way. Meaning, the tools that we have are no better than the tools he had. He had much better tools, and he still concluded that way. But the other Chachamim didn't agree that this is the fit. There it was, in essence, a, a disagreement of a, of a minor detail, if you will. So, um, you know, it doesn't contradict everything else that he taught. It doesn't dis- uh, 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 say that, uh, you know, uh, everything else is wrong or anything like that. It's just simply there are certain things that look like what they are. When you get up a little closer, it looks like something else. You know, you could see today, for example, you know, you could uh, uh, walk around. And if you're not looking down, you could see women walking around in Jewish neighborhoods and non-Jewish neighborhoods and so on, right? Now, some of them are walking in front of you and all you see is the back of their head, right? Now, you back of the head looks like, you know, she has long hair, looks like she's 25 years old, she's walking with heels, you know, looks like she's, uh, you know, young, maybe marriageable age, maybe she's single, maybe this, maybe that. So you try to catch up, catch up, catch up, catch up. And you finally catch up, you look at her, she's 97 years old, she's almost 98. Why? Because from the back, she looks one way. From the front, something completely different. It looks that way, but it ends up being that way. So that's in essence one of the things. Rabbi Salami Salan says that why do people, why are people not afraid of sins? Because a sin is like a star. You see a star from far away, so it looks really, really small. It looks really small, but the closer you get to the star, the more you realize that it's huge. And many times even bigger than the world, bigger than, than, than the uh, earth. The only reason you think it's small is because you're far away. Same thing with the less knowledge a person has about a sin, the more insignificant they think that it is. So the same concept here. Rabbi Akiva used certain rules, certain uh, uh, things, and concluded it one way and ended up being wrong. It ended up being wrong. But he's not the only one that made such mistakes. This has been one of the uh, curses of the exile that there were many, many false prophets and many false messiahs. There's actually a whole book, probably 800 pages in Hebrew, that is about all of the, the stories of all of the false messiahs. The, uh, and there were many, many of them that caused major damage to Am Yisrael. Of course, the worst one of all was a Yeshua uh, Nutsri, Machshimo Vizichro. Bar Kochba was one of them. You had Shabtai Tzvi, Machshimo. Uh, his followers, till this day, till this day there are students from the Shabtai Tzvi uh, revolt that happened and that whole thing that the false messiah, even after it was proven that he's not and he's a Rasha and so on, still to this day there are certain people that call themselves Shabtinians uh, 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 that, that, that follow him. So these types of things are, uh, you know, one of the, uh, one of the uh, punishments of the, of the exile. One of the punishments of the exile and, but when the final Mashiach does come, it's not going to be up for debate. It's not going to be uh, some people believe, some people don't believe. It's going to be clear as day. Because the, it's going to not just have the qualifying uh, 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 items, it's going to have everything. This is also part of the reason of why, you know, when, when uh, Chachamim reviewed the case of Chabad, saying that their, uh, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, was, uh, was Mashiach, or they still think he's Mashiach. This is the reason why, you know, no Gdolador ever said and agreed with them, uh, simply because it's, uh, even if, if you look at the Rambam, there are, there are certain people that have qualifications of Mashiach, and there's certain things that makes a person Mashiach, meaning there were certain things that had to happen. Certain things that had to happen in order to make the person Mashiach. 
but it has nothing to do with his personality, if he has a lot of students, if he's old, if he has a long beard, if he's Hasidish, Ashkenazi, it had nothing to do with that. It had to do with certain things that they put into the world, which is one of them is world peace. Okay? With all due respect to all of the great people that, uh, that, uh, that thought that the Lubavitcher Rebbe is a Mashiach, <laughs> I don't see world peace. There's no world peace. It's the same thing with the Christians that think that their Yoshke is a uh, uh, Mashiach. There's no world peace. Now, of course, the Christians are saying, no, he's going to come back. He's going to come back to finish the job. And unfortunately, the Chabadniks also saying the same thing. He's going to come back. He's going to come back. And that's the new argument. There's one of their so-called Chachamim. He's been bothering me for the last three years with his little crazy uh, 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 back and forth. He paskind. He paskind. That, that the Mashiach can come from the dead. Meaning, yes, we agree, he agrees that the Lubavitcher Rebbe died, but his proof is that he's going to come back from the dead, and then he's going to show you Mashiach. What's the, what's, what's the, what's the uh, uh, flow with this argument? Very simple. There are some Chachamim that, 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 that uh, discuss this also. It's very Because other people were uh, discussed as, as potential Mashiachs in the past. Very simple. If the Mashiach can come from the dead, why would it be him? There are much greater people than him. With all due respect to him, there are much greater people than him. Uh, Moshe Rabbeinu? Anybody th- think that Moshe Rabbeinu is less than him? David HaMelech? David HaMelech is less than him? Chizkiyahu? That Hashem already wanted to make him a Mashiach? Rabbi Akiva? I don't know, Rabban Gamliel? Rabbi Kadosh, Rabbi Yudanasi, the original Rabbi? And a bunch of others that, you know, are, are much higher than the Lubavitcher Rabbi can be because he's in a different generation. Uh, so that's the thing. It's, it's, it's illogical as far as the logic of the Torah to think such a thing, but when someone is using their logic versus Torah logic, it's very easy to conclude what they concluded. Why? He was a very inspirational tzaddik. He, he had a huge amount of, uh, of, of chizuk, and he did a lot of great things. It's very easy. When you're using human logic, very easy to conclude that great people can be Mashiach. There are some people that thought Donald Trump is Mashiach because they admired what he did so much, they forgot he's not Jewish. Like, it's, it's, that's the thing. There are, there are some people that think that Ben Shapiro is Mashiach. I'm serious. Right? There are people that think Ben Shapiro is Mashiach. It's, obviously, it's, this is retarded, but this is what people think. Now, even if you ask Ben Shapiro, he'll laugh at it and say, it's re- this is ridiculous. But there are stupid people that think this. When you use their logic, when you have the limited amount of tools that they have in their head, it's very easy to, to, to see how they conclude it. Imagine, it's just like this. If you have a plastic screwdriver, and that's all you have. The best you can do is maybe you could do some Legos. That's it. So if you showed me that you made a little Lego car with your plastic screwdriver, I'm not going to fault you for it. I'm going to say, that's the tools you had. That's the tools you had. Now if you have an entire garage full of tools, and all you built is a little tiny car, I'm going to say, what are you doing with your time? Why are you wasting time? Why are you wasting time? So when you have people preaching Mashiach now all day, and not preaching Shabbat now, not preaching watch your eyes now, not preaching follow Allah now, not preaching the rest of the Torah now, only Mashiach now, then what do they have? Little screwdriver. That's all they have in the head. Little screwdriver in the head. So with that screwdriver, it's not such a, it's not such a flaw that the, all you build is a baby car. But if you look at the entire realm of the beautiful Torah that we have, you have Midrashim, you have Poskim, you have, you have uh, the Gemara, you have uh, endless Torah. Literally, there are millions of books. 
No civilization on earth has even a remote possibility of being close to the amount of knowledge as Am Yisrael. Nothing, nothing, not even close. China, India, all of them combined do not have as many books as we do, as much wisdom as we do. And this is not an exaggeration. Simply, it's impossible. I have a subscription for, for this Otsar uh, Chokhmah. Uh, that's a, uh, that's a, uh, a website that has a, uh, books and uh, it has, I don't know, I think 116,000 or 118,000 books on it. So instead of buying 116,000 books and you know, pretty much having to buy 15 buildings to fill it, you, know, you have it on the computer. So this is just one website. This is just one. And there are a bunch of others like it. And there are things that are not on the websites. The point being is, there's an endless amount of wisdom. When you start studying the Torah, studying the Torah, studying what our Torah really is, it's very easy to be where I'm standing and say that to think all of these things that people say, whether it's a, uh, uh, whatever, whatever, all the things that we, to say all of it is ridiculous. Why? Because you've studied Torah and you realize it's, it's ludicrous to say these things. That's why you go to Chachamim, and they say, yeah, these are crazy people. You know, somebody came to the uh, Rav Kanievsky, and he was wearing this red string. Rav Kanievsky looked at it and said, what is this? What is this red string? And the guy was, oh, no, it's a gula for protection. Rav Kanievsky, with his Kedusha, looks at him and goes, who said this to you? He goes, no, the people have sold me. He goes, eh, Meshugana. He says that crazy people say stuff like that. A little red string is going to give you protection? He goes, yeah, this is stupid. Now, the guy that bought it and the guy that sold it, they may believe it because what all they have is a little tiny screwdriver in their head. They believe that a little red string can give you protection. But a person that learned Torah nonstop says, you actually, okay, you know, crazy people think that. I don't know. So that's the thing. You have to understand. There are certain things that Chachamim won't even discuss. They won't even discuss it. Why? Because to them, it's so obvious, there's no question. You ask them, are you allowed to drive on Shabbat? They won't debate you about it. Why? It's Shuchan Aruch. It's a simple halacha. It says no. It's fourth commandment. It's not, it's, not, it's not up for debate. There is no debate. Fourth commandment is the, uh, you know, uh, don't uh, keep, to keep Shabbat. So, the point is, is that there's no debate allowed, not allowed. It's just, this is what it is. So they're not going to go and start writing books to justify why you're not allowed to drive on Shabbat. You're not going to find that. Why? It's a waste of time. It's a simple psak. There is no debate. It's not up for debate. There are certain things that are up for debate because there are multiple opinions, but that, again, is, 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 not, uh, is, is, is not something that uh, uh, is like the things that people are dealing with today. This whole thing of Mashiach and all that stuff. Uh, generally speaking, all of the people that uh, have um, focused on Mashiach as their priority in life didn't end up very well. Rabbi Akiva made a mistake with Bar Kokhba, but he didn't make his whole life about it. Rabbi Akiva still stayed Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva still focused on the Torah, focused on teaching the Torah, focused on having 24,000 students. And even after he lost all 24,000 students, he rebuilt the entire world of Torah and had his five students rebuild the entire world of Torah. Meaning the whole world Torah that we have today comes from Rabbi Akiva and his five students. So 
as much as what Rabbi Akiva saw, which is much more than anybody else in the world saw today, he didn't make his whole life about, about Mashiach. And that's one of the things, is that it's, a, uh, it's very important for a person to know that our Torah is wider than the ocean. To make your life only about one mitzvah, any mitzvah, it doesn't matter what it is, Mashiach, Shabbat, wasting seed, uh, any one mitzvah is a mistake. Why? Because we have a huge Torah. Huge, huge, huge Torah. And to just make your, the whole Torah into one thing is disrespectful to the Torah. So that's why, even the ones that have discussed Mashiach, nobody made it their life. Nobody made it their life. And that's one of the things that I try to teach people often, especially Ba'alei Tshuva, that are very, very excited about Mashiach. It sometimes even motivates them to do Tshuva or to, to, to stay strong, but it's not healthy. It's not healthy to make that your primary focus. Uh, to, to, to the whole, uh, the world is going to end tomorrow uh, does not last forever. You know, that, that feeling doesn't last forever. You, you need to learn Torah and do mitzvot to live. Not because the world's going to explode tomorrow. Not because there's World War III tomorrow. Yes, we've had discussions about it. We've had lectures about it. Uh, we are very well aware of it. But that's not the reason why we do tshuva. That's not the reason why we learn Torah. Uh, that's, uh, the reason why we learn, we do, is because we want to be the best servants we can today. Even if Hashem destroys the world tomorrow, it doesn't make a difference. I'm going to be the best I can be today. By being an expert about Mashiach does not make you more righteous by even 1%. But being an expert on Shabbat does. Being an expert on Kashrut does. Being an expert on Tzniut does. Being an expert on Mashiach doesn't make you more righteous at all. 0% more righteous. So much so that the Rambam says that anybody that's, that puts a set time on when Mashiach is going to come gets a curse from heaven. And we had, we had a uh, tribe of uh, Ephraim. A tribe of Ephraim thought that this, the, the, uh, the salvation came. They left Egypt before Moshe Rabbeinu came, and HaKadosh Baruch Hu killed all of them. And uh, Rabbi Yudaftai and Ruchot Mesaprot says that they all uh, uh, sat in Kafakela for 900 years. 900 years doing Kafakela. You guys know what Kafakela is? And imagine a nightmare multiplied by a billion? Maybe. Maybe. That's Kafakela. Why? They guessed what Mashiach was. Honestly, it's, 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 a, it's a, uh, the most bizarre, ludicrous thing in the world that an entire movement of people made the entire Torah into Mashiach. You're never going to find a Gdor that will do that. Even the Lubavitcher Rebbe didn't do it. People say he did, but he didn't. He wrote, he learned. The whole, uh, the whole teachings of Mashiach now was in order to inspire Tshuva now. Inspire Tshuva now. Tshuva takes time. Tshuva takes effort. Tshuva takes learning Torah. That's why if he really believed that Mashiach is the only thing, why did he tell people to go learn Rambam every single year? Why did he continue writing more and more things, more things that didn't just discuss Mashiach? Because it wasn't. The entire Torah is not just Mashiach. People make it into it because it's very sellable. It's just like the conspiracy guys, the people that like to talk about world order and Bill Gates is going to destroy the world and all that other nonsense. It's very sellable because... People like like uh, Armageddon type of talks. They like it. It's, it's, it gets like a movie. But we're not, you know, we're not living in a movie. And, and a person needs to know that the Torah is Baruch Hashem, beautiful without all that stuff. You could learn it. You could study it. But if you make it your only thing that you know, you go up to Shemaim, they'll tell you you're going to Gainom. You're not going to heaven. You could be the biggest expert in the world about Mashiach. You're going to Gainom. Why? 
You won't know how to keep Shabbat. I know guys that that's all they watch. They only watch about Mashiach, and they sometimes watch debates between Christians and, and Jews. And I've told them to their faces, you're going to Gainom. You, you don't know how to keep Shabbat, you don't know how to keep Kashrut, you don't know how to keep anything. But you're an expert about Mashiach. If I ask you a question about Mashiach this one, what's the opinion of the Abarbanel, what's the opinion of the Rambam, what's the opinion, you can tell me off the top of your head. Ask you, Allah Shabbat, how many Malachot there are, even the number, you won't know. There are certain people that know everything about Mashiach, but actual real Torah, nothing. So you don't go to heaven for knowing Mashiach. You go to heaven for knowing Torah and fulfilling it. And that's what we have to focus on. Yes? Uh, well, I mean, the thing is, though, is that if he can go to a Sephardic shul, that's ideal. If he can't go to a Sephardic shul, and he can only go to Ashkenazi shul, he has to act like the minhag of the makom. Even though, according to the, uh, the Rambam, uh, you're really not supposed to stand up for any uh, part of the Torah. It doesn't matter whether it's the Ten Commandments or it's uh, creation or anything else, because in essence, you're saying that that verse is more important than any other verse in the Torah, which is not true. I don't know of, a, uh, uh, of many people that actually stand for the Ten Commandments, aside from people that are usually not really religious, but uh, in the Sephardi community. Uh, but generally speaking, uh, you know, it's, it's, not, uh, it's not something that was acceptable for, for Sephardim. But regardless uh, of that, if you're going to be in a certain community, uh, you have to, in essence, fit in. If you could, let's say, uh, walk out, before they get to it, go to the bathroom or something, probably preferable. Preferable for you to go to the bathroom than to do that, uh, if you can. But, uh, you know, it's, a, uh, uh, it's, not, uh, it's not something that's, uh, you're not, you know, it's not, it's not a kafakel or anything. It's just, uh, it's, it wasn't an acceptable behavior. You know, but again, it's, uh, certain places have certain customs. If you're going to be in that place, you have to have that custom. You have to do it. You have no other choice. Yeah, go ahead. How can one face the sweetness of Torah? Gemara Masechet Vachot, in the end, says, Resh uh, Lakish says, someone wants Torah, they have to be willing to die for it. Another Gemara says, someone wants Torah, they have to be willing to throw up the breast milk they drank as a baby. From their mommy, they have to throw up that, uh, that breast milk. Now you're 25, 30 years old. How are you going to throw that up? Meaning, again, same thing. You have to be willing to die for it. What does it mean you have to be willing to die for it? An average person wakes up in the morning, goes to work, goes to school, does whatever it is that life obligates him to do, does it for, let's say, eight hours. And uh, he has to do some other things in life, go to the bathroom, Sleep, whatever, all these different things. Either way, all of us have the same 24 hours. There are certain things you can't avoid. You can't avoid going to the bathroom. You can't avoid eating forever. You can't avoid sleep forever. You can't avoid certain things. But there's a certain amount out of that 12 hours a day that you have to do things. You have to work, you have to eat, you have to do things. But HaKadosh Baruch Hu doesn't judge the person as far as their Torah learning 
on that time that they need to do the things they can't avoid. It's the rest of that time. It's the rest of that time that a person has. What are you doing with that time? Now, the average person, what does he do in that time? Facebook, Netflix, television, sports, betting, poker, stock market, hanging out, nothing, nothing times two, nothing times three, nothing with other people, nothing with a lot of people. So Kadosh Baruch Hu says, for that, special angels, called Malachi Chabalah, they are next to the oven. In the oven, there's Gechalere Tamim. Coals that never go out. They're going to feed that person that. Why? You came to the world to serve HaKadosh Baruch Hu. HaKadosh Baruch Hu gave you a gift. What did he give you? He gave you a Torah. You know what Torah is? Not only it's a blueprint to the world, it's a cheat sheet to go to heaven. Cheat sheet. Legit cheat sheet. Imagine. You have a teacher. Tie a class in front of you. Right? Teacher says, class, everything is on the line. I know we studied together hard and we, we fought tooth and nail. And we went through the year. We're together for the last eight, nine months. And everybody took quizzes and tests and everything. Cancel everything. Everything that the whole year, whether you graduate or not, is relying on this test. Now this test is not a small test. But, don't you worry. I have a cheat sheet. I'm going to give it to you. The answers are in the cheat sheet. All you got to do is read the cheat sheet. That's it. It's an open book test. If you pass the test, you pass all of the years, all of the effort, all of those sleepless nights, everything was worth it, you go on to the next stage. You don't, you fail everything. Now, everybody's in front, everybody takes the class, everybody don't. A, B, C, D. At the end, they all give, they all happy. Hey, I got a hundred. How do you know? You hey, teaching. And then one guy, here, teacher looks at it. He already knows there's something wrong. Why? The guy didn't take the cheat sheet out of the uh, wrapper that he put it. He looks at it. Everything's wrong. Does that guy deserve a punishment or no? Does that guy deserve a punishment or no? He deserves double punishment. Not just a punishment, double punishment. Not only I told you everything's on the line, but I gave you a cheat sheet, Ribonoshel Olam, I gave you the answers. All you had to do is open the book, open the little wrapper, chew, it says A, put A. You don't even have to read the question. And you didn't even, you were too lazy to open up the wrapper? And that's the thing. A person is not judged for going to the bathroom. He's not judged for sleeping. He's not judged for working to make panasas so he can eat. He's judged on how he does it. How he does it. And how he does it is, is, is dependent on what he does with all that extra time. If he learns Torah, he knows how to sleep. 
If he learns Torah, he knows how to take a shower. If he learns Torah, he knows how to go to the bathroom. If he doesn't learn Torah, he's looking at me with four eyes and has no idea what I'm talking about. You take a shower, I take a shower. You eat, I eat. You go to the bathroom, I go to the bathroom. But sometimes, I'll get a mitzvah and you'll get a genom. Why? I learned Torah, I know how to go to the bathroom. I learned Torah, I know how to take a shower. I learned Torah, I know how to eat. The person says, what do you mean eat? Everybody knows how to eat. Not true. Not true. A person eats like the animals of the world. Goes by the sandwich, sits at a bench in front of everybody, opens legs and starts eating and everything is all over his face. It's good, right? He's going to gain on for that. Why? He's disgusting. It's Chilul Hashem. Being disgusting is Chilul Hashem. Another guy. Same sandwich. Delicious sandwich. With china and hummus and this and that. But he goes to the side. He goes to the side, eats. Not in front of the whole world. Make sure if he sees something spilled, he cleans himself. He's polite. Doesn't put everything on his clothes. He's not disgusting. He doesn't burp. He's not disgusting to people. He's private. He's modest. He doesn't eat more than his head. He doesn't go to the, uh, to the party. You know, he goes, he's invited to the wedding. Goes to the buffet 16 times like he never ate in his life. Why? Oh, I gave $500. Why? Can't eat? Yeah, but who says you have to eat for 60 people? Some people, they go to these parties, they eat like they never eat in their life. Who says you're supposed to do such a thing? There's a way to be modest. There's a way to have manners. One person eats, another person eats. One person goes to Gan Eden, another person goes to Gehenom. Why? One guy said a blessing, said thank you, HaKadosh Baruch Hu. For what? For giving me this food. Thank you for giving me bread. Thank you for giving me meat. Thank you for giving me an apple. Thank you for giving me an orange. Thank you for giving me a tomato. Thank you for giving me this. Thank you for, gi- thank you for giving me everything. And everything has a different way to give thank you. And after I finish eating, he also says thank you. Thank you, Kadosh Baruch Hu, for everything that you gave me. Depending on what you gave me. If you gave me bread and a whole meal, there's a Bichat Amazon, thank you. If you gave me something that's Mezonot, there's the Mezonot, thank you. If it says Shakol, then there's that. But guess what? Even during the meal, the Mishnah and Avot says, you're eating. It's other people next to you. You don't speak Divrei Torah. The table that you're using to put your food on is like an altar for idolatry. Why? You're eating. You finished eating. Say Dvar Torah. Say something in Torah. Don't say sports. Don't say news. Don't say stock market. Say something Divrei Torah. You eat bread without saying divrei Torah. It's like what you ate. It's like a, you're served an idol. Why? You forget where, the, where, the, where this food came from? A person says divrei Torah. That was worth it to eat. It was worth it for HaKadosh Baruch Hu to have a half a million people work to give you that pita and the hummus and everything else that you ate. Why? You said five words of Torah. Even if the five words of Torah were chazaku baruch kvod arav. Because you heard the rabbi speak. And the rabbi is not even next to you. He's on YouTube. You heard a clip on YouTube while you were eating. It was worth it for Kadosh Baruch to give you the food. But if instead you're watching, uh, I don't know, one of these basketball or football players on YouTube, or instead you're talking about their salary caps, then surely the food that you ate is like the idolater ate the food.
Another guy takes a shower. He takes a shower, he takes a shower. He goes to Gan Eden, he goes to Genom. Why? He takes a shower, he knows, I'm doing this to make sure I'm sanctifying a Kadosh Bokhu's name and making sure I don't desecrate a Kadosh Bokhu's name. How? If you smell, if you're disgusting, people smell you. In fact, if you walk around with a stain on your shirt, it's Chilul Hashem. Now, if it happened, there's no way for you to fix it. Fine. But most of the time, people have a way to fix it. People walk around with all types of odd smells like you find in the farm, but they're in non-farm cities. Chilul Hashem. A person takes a shower. He knows there's an order. Why? Because you have to have structure for everything. Right hand first. Left hand second. Right hand, right leg first. Left leg second. Why? Because there's structure. HaKadosh Baruch Hu gave structure to everything. Why? Because I'm not washing my right hand because my right hand is so beautiful and uh, she'll, she's going to marry me because I have a right... No. I'm washing my right hand to sanctify HaKadosh Baruch Hu so I can use this hand to serve Hashem in some way. I could write a chidush, I could give tzedakah, I could do chesed with this right hand. That's why I'm washing this tool that HaKadosh Baruch Hu gave me to serve him. And after I finish this tool, I have a second tool. Left hand, I put tefillin on the tool. I could also do chesed with this tool. I could do a lot of things with this tool. That's why I'm washing it. I'm not washing it so everybody can see how I can flex my muscle. Then I wash my leg, but not just any. Wash my right leg. Why wash my right leg? Because my right leg, I used to go forward. But if I don't have my left leg, then I will just fall. So I wash my left leg second, and so on and so forth. There's an order to everything, showing that we appreciate everything. If you take everything all at once, you do this like everybody else does, there's no difference between you and the uh, cow. You know, the cow, when they wash it, they don't take it. There's no structure. The bull, when the uh, elephant, elephant, you guys see the, the, the uh, Africa videos? You know, the, the elephant goes into the water. Goes into the water. He doesn't, there's no like order. Oh yeah, let me just do my right hand and my left hand. No. Elephant goes in the water. That's an elephant. He's having a good time in the water. If that's what you are, an elephant, okay, so you go to the elephant, Ganeden. Don't go to human Ganeden. But if a person thinks about a Kadosh Baruch Hu, even in the shower, that's a person that actually loves a Kadosh Baruch Hu. Now, last but not least, the bathroom. How do you go to the bathroom? Bathroom, bathroom. You eat, it comes out. What do you mean, bathroom? No, there's a way, way to go to the bathroom. You have to be modest when you go to the bathroom. First of all, one of the things that people, especially guys, have to be conscious of is there's never really a reason for you to stand up when you go into the bathroom, even if you're going in public uh, places. It's always better for you to sit down. Why? Because of the issues of the breet. When you're sitting down, there's really no reason for you to touch your breet. If you're single, you're not even allowed to touch your breath. If you're married, limited. Needless to say, there's no reason for you to touch the breath. Why? Sit down. Sit down. When you sit down, you don't need to touch your breath. Now, why is there a big difference to touch the breath or not touch the breath? The more comfortable a person is with their own body, the more comfortable they are to sin with it. The less you touch your body, especially skin to skin, the less likely you are to sin with it. Sometimes guys ask me these certain questions. Say, oh, when I see this, I say, why are you looking at your breed, Bichlal? What are you, checking if it's still there? It's still there even if you don't look at it. And that's the thing. A person that goes to the bathroom, the Torah way, is conscious of the fact that he has to be modest 
even in the bathroom. Even in the bathroom. Why? Because you are a servant of a Kadosh Baruch Hu. You're not an animal. You're not an ox. You're not a horse that just goes wherever he goes. While he's walking, he leaves his remains everywhere. You are the son of God. You understand what that means? You're the son of a Kadosh Baruch Hu? You're the daughter of a Kadosh Baruch Hu? Certain people, they walk around in one of the most disgusting thing in the world that I've ever found. Lowest form of conversation is when people talk about that stuff between each other. Oh, I have a stomachache and they did what? Why are you talking about it with you? For what? Is he a doctor? Or you just want to tell people about your, 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 uh, your, the colors that you... What, what is it? Or sometimes ladies talk about this stuff with each other or what happens between her and her husband. There are certain conversations that are inappropriate, not necessarily because it, is, it doesn't exist and only you do it. It's just not necessary. It's not appropriate. But many times people speak like everybody else. A certain body part of hers is, I don't know, has a uh, scratch on it of some kind, or has some type of it. She decides to tell her girlfriends over coffee while the kids are there. Oh, you know, it's a, the kids are there. They're listening to your conversation. This is what you are, this is, this is your, your. So you have to understand, when you do things according to the Torah, you speak with God in mind. You go to the bathroom with God in mind. You take a shower with God in mind. Even being with your wife or husband, you do it with God in mind. The more you have God in mind, the more godly you are. And the more beautiful and holy you are as a person. Now this does not happen overnight. It doesn't happen overnight. It takes time, it takes effort, it takes softening of the character. But nonetheless, the life of a holy Jew is a world of difference from everybody else. Why? Because they have God in mind literally 24 hours a day. While the rest of the world may have God or their God in mind, but only at unique places. In the church, in the mosque, while they're blessing, while they're reading, meaning it's when, when God has time for them or they have time for God. There's appointments. A Jew is supposed to think about God all the time. I do business, I have to think about God. Why? Is this business allowed or no? Am I cheating him? Is he cheating me? Is it a legal business? Not only legal according to the law, according to the Torah. Did I, was I honest with him? Did I push him too much? Is he an orphan? Is he a convert? Is he a Jew? Is he a Gentile? All of these things matter. Everything matters. The more you learn, the more you realize how much everything matters. Now when a person, ah, it's too extreme. For those of you that think it's too extreme, read chapter 88 of Minchat Yehuda, and I promise you, you're going to say you're not extreme enough, Rabbi. You're not extreme enough. What happens to people that say it's extreme? And it's beautiful to do it because it makes you better. It makes you a better human being, a better everything. But again, it's effort, effort every day. Next question. Yes.
Well, there is a few things. One, for stories of tshuva, we have a part of our website that's called Tshuva Stories, one of the tabs on the Bezat Hashem website. It's called Tshuva Stories, where a few people have uh, either made videos or made or wrote up the story of their tshuva and how they got inspired to, to do tshuva. There's a few of those, Baruch Hashem. Uh, then there is uh, people that come to the lectures here. You end up meeting people, and sometimes people stay in touch. I've had uh, some people become very, very good friends and even become chavuta uh, with each other, study partners with each other as a result of certain events or certain uh, things. Then there's also the online network. Typically the people <coughs> that are make comments on uh, Facebook or YouTube uh, they end up see, you end up seeing the same faces over and over again, and sometimes they exchange uh, they exchange information, they discuss. Sometimes they only talk through the comments. Uh, there is such a thing. Uh, as far as doing it, like for us to host, like some type of chat room or something like that for people to talk, uh, it's simply not possible for a couple of reasons. Number one, uh, you know, when you have many people in a certain place, everybody wants to talk. And what ends up happening is it ends up, it's impossible to track. Now, I've had a couple of people try to, you know, create a group for me and stick me in the group without asking me. And then, you know, everybody decides to ask 87 questions all at the same time. And what ends up happening is after I do it for a day, sometimes two days, and then I suffer enough, uh, I leave the group because it's simply not possible for me to maintain. It's not possible. And it's also uh, something I don't want because what ends up happening is that Nine out of ten times, eventually a fight breaks up between a couple of people. There's, let's say, 250 people, 500 people, whatever it is in the group. Two people fight about he believes this, the other guy believes that, and then they start going at it at each other. And it becomes just one big chilul Hashem and Lashonara and all the other things. So generally speaking, I don't, I don't ever uh, want and don't ever plan on making any type of like a digital chat room of some kind because we've tried it in small scale and it's a disaster but I do highly recommend for people to be social uh, with each other and help each other in whatever way they can at these events if you see people uh, commenting online uh, you know then uh, then it's a uh, certainly uh, certainly a good idea uh, and I think people do it already I think that's that's in essence social networking to be honest with you it's not my nature to, to make friends online, so I honestly don't know how people do it, uh, but some people, they do. Some people made really good friends, and they tell me, oh, listen, I have a friend that uh, said this, and I have a friend. I'm like, when do you have time for all these friends? It's like, no, it's like an online friend. I'm like, oh, you actually talk to people? Like, I, you know, I've never, I don't know, I've never had a social uh, friend in my life, so I don't really know how that actually works. I have people that ask me questions, but they're not my friends. So, but people are friends. People friend each other, and they, they talk, and they, they become like real friends, it's amazing. So if you do that, you can. I mean, there's definitely certain ways to do it. There's, you typically see the same faces, uh, you know, in, in the comments, in the comment section, whether it be Facebook or it be uh, um, uh, um, uh, YouTube. One thing I don't like, and I, and I, and I, uh, uh, I would appreciate it if people actually listen to me on this, is I don't like creeps. Meaning, there are certain creeps that join our groups on WhatsApp, and then they start looking at everybody's profiles. That are, you know, you have a group, let's say, you know, we have a bunch of groups, and each group has, I don't know, a few hundred people in it, right? And some people join the group, not necessarily because they care about the group, but just because they want to, you know, they want to see everybody's profile that's part of that group. 
because you know it's it's open. It's not like uh, there's no way to block it. So they see everybody else's phone number that's part of that group, and everybody usually has a profile picture. And if they find a profile picture that they like, they start calling people or texting them, and sometimes uh, you know approaching married women and doing all types of people like that are creeps. Uh, it's, so anytime I find out anybody does that, there is no three strike system. It's simply one strike. I find out the person doing it, they get thrown out of the group forever. But unfortunately, sometimes these people poach, uh, poach again in different ways, different phone numbers. Today, you could literally change your phone number in five minutes. So I, I never recommend for people to look up other people's profile and then reach out to them. If you see one person is commenting and you see that there, you have similar, uh, 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 thought process or, or, or you think alike in some way, you have, a, you have any type of similarities other than the fact that they're a different gender that you're attracted to or, or some other thing like that. If it's genuine and you see that there's a, you have, you're like-minded, you know, obviously you talk and you know, if they want to talk to you, talk to them. But people that like break into uh, these things, I, to me, it's no different than somebody breaking into a house. Uh, I think it's very, very creepy and uh, it's very strange and I've actually... Uh, uh, dealt with a couple of stories like it where it, it went too far. In one case, it almost caused a divorce. Almost caused a divorce. Mother of four kids. Married mother with four kids, Froom, almost got a divorce because of, of, of this particular issue. So it's a, uh, you know, the yes, that comes in all different ways. So quite frankly, for me, I don't know how people have time for friends, but I know some people do like to share their, you know, their lives and so on, and it's necessary to, some, to a certain extent. Uh, but uh, my recommendation is that uh, to do it in you know in a uh, uh, appropriate way and not you know not push yourself in. But also, there's no need to be shy. You know, there's a lot of people commenting, a lot of people commenting, a lot of people want to talk, a lot of people are looking for like-minded people. Uh, so I don't think it's very difficult. I actually know of a few people that have become very good friends as a result of uh, you know the the lectures and so on. Next, yes. no truth whatsoever. It's like saying, if everybody in the community violates Shabbat, and you keep Shabbat, you're, uh, you're going against Allah. No, it's complete nonsense. Usually people that don't know anything uh, say things like that uh, because they uh, don't like to see anybody going against the tide that's reminding them of, number one, what they're supposed to be doing, uh, what they're really supposed to be doing. Everybody knows that Sarai Menu did not wear a wig. Everybody knows that Tzipora, the wife of Moshe Rabbeinu, Mount Sinai, no wigs there. Nobody wore a wig at Mount Sinai. Not Tipora, not uh, Miriam, nobody wore a wig over there. Needless to say, even the poskim that permitted wigs, no one permitted the wigs of today that are 30 feet long, uh, longer than the exile. Nobody permitted this stuff. And needless to say, no one that actually followed some of the research that we've published and other chachamim have published about the fact that the real hair wigs are literally, uh, it's, it's virtually impossible for you to get a real hair wig that's not part of idolatry. Virtually impossible, unless it's your hair that you've shaved, uh, which is not common, because uh, usually you have to have three heads for, for every wig. But needless to say, there are many, many problems with wigs. Uh, so for someone to go out there and say that a wig is more modest than a kisurosh, that's a liar. 
uh, that's not only lying to you, but also lying to themselves. I know it's, it happens at times. It's like, unfortunately, some places, Jewish seminaries for girls, that tell the girls that wear uh, long skirts that reach their ankles, that they're not being modest because they're not wearing the short skirt like the rest of the girls. This is obviously completely ludicrous, and when it was brought, these types of claims were brought to Gdole Adot, Rav Tzion Mutsafi, Rav Ovadia, uh, and many other Gdolim that heard this nonsense, literally they started yelling out of pure, uh, fury of, of this ridiculousness of how people, uh, uh, you know, literally desecrate the Torah because they want one way. Even if a person finds a leniency or finds a permission, if you will, to do, you know, to, uh, to wear a wig or a serge skirt or whatever, don't make that the, the, uh, the ideal. You know, so for example, the halacha is a woman is supposed to wear a skirt, number one, that's loose. Number two, that has to be six inches from the bottom of the, of the knee after you sit down. Now, if a woman is wearing a, such a skirt that after she sits down, it's six inches, the, the skirt is still covering six inches above that, that's fine. Now, it's not ideal, it's fine. Meaning, if she's wearing that, and then there's another woman right next to her that's wearing a longer skirt, she can't say that her skirt is just as modest as hers. Every normal person knows that. But that's what they would expect you to believe. They would expect you to believe that if it's longer, it's less modest, which every normal person knows it's, to, it's, it's obviously not true. So if it's longer, it's more modest. If it's shorter, it's less modest. It's, it's normal people, that, that's what we're supposed to think. But the liars that lie to themselves will want you to think the other way. Same thing with wigs. Anyone that says wigs are more modest, wigs are more kosher, it's completely ludicrous. Especially the people that unfortunately again have to bring up Chabad because this is like an epidemic in, in their community uh, where they, they continuously bring the Zohar. The Zohar, in the name of the Zohar, they say that uh, your, uh, the Zohar says to cover every hair and that's why the wig is better because it covers all the hair. How long are you going to let these people desecrate the Torah? I don't know. But it's complete nonsense. Yes, it's ideal for you to cover every single hair, but there are also Allahic permissions to have a certain amount of hair showing. And needless to say, the Zohar never mentioned once to have a wig. Not once will you find the entire Zohar from beginning to end the permission to wear a wig. But they're going to make you think that the, that the Zohar is saying to wear a wig. By manipulating the, the words. Even though you have Gdole Adol from a time of before Rabbi Akiva that spoke against the wig when the wig looked like a carpet. So again, it, it, there's a way to say, okay, you want to say it's okay, you want to say you're relying on a certain percent, you want to say that your, your wig is modest, it's not longer than the exile, it's not idolatry, no problem. But don't start telling me that it's more modest than a Kisurosh. It's not, everybody knows that. Everybody knows that, including the, the, most, the biggest, most righteous people in the world. So that's the thing. It's when people start believing their own lies, that's when you know that the sickness is terminal. So never allow people to decide what's right and wrong for you. Always double check, just like you did. But quite frankly, I would expect the war to continue until Mashiach comes. Uh, so don't expect that to change, especially if you are part of a community where it's a, uh, predominantly women. Uh, where, now, there are certain communities where it's most women wear wigs, but 
they don't care if you wear kisulosh. Uh, with Chabad, it's a little unique. It's almost like idolatry for them. Like as far as their, their wigs, the Rebbe being Mashiach, you know, these are like uh, their Ikare Emunah. Like if you tell them kisulosh, it's very odd for them to, to believe that uh, it's supposed to be mitpachat. I have a few students that attend Chabad and they were thrown out of the kila because the women uh, want to wear the uh, kisulosh of a scarf. It's very strange. And I'm not talking about one place. Seattle, Canada, in, uh, in uh, Montreal, and a few other places. It's a very, very strange thing. It's like they feel like they are going against the community or the rabbi if you wear a scarf. So I don't know why this is the case. I mean, perhaps it's bad for business, but still, it's their choice. You know, it's, uh, there's more rebuke on uh, people that speak against wigs or people that speak against the Rebbe being Mashiach than there is rebuke against people that... Uh, Speak, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, on the phone on Shabbat. <laughs> so it's, it's strange. It's very strange. Either way, listen. It's a uh, important for a person to know what the rule is, uh, and also know what the rule is not. Don't let other people decide for you. You have to. Do, you have to check everything. Have your rabbi. Uh, but also, if you could avoid uh, the battles, avoid them. Meaning, if you have two choices, one community, everybody's against uh, scarves. Another community, people don't care. Go to community number two. You know, assuming the rest of the things are the same. But uh, because, you know, there are certain things, like I just said, there are certain places, they're not going to let it go. It's certain for them, it's, if you don't believe it, it's like you're a kofil. It's like you're, you're a heretic for, for, uh, for not wearing a wig. Or for not, you know, for, for not believing that the Mashiach is uh, going to come and he's going to be Rebbe. I've had at least... A half a dozen uh, Chabadniks in the last week and a half call me a heretic for not believing that the Rebbe is Mashiach. So, good. Uh, I can never kosher a pig. So... My knowledge of, of, uh, of wigs is different than most people because we didn't just look at the, the uh, uh, dispute between the sages uh, that debated about whether a wig is modest at all or not. That's already a machloket that's going on for 400 years, even though the majority of poskim, by an overwhelming amount, say that a wig is not modest and you're not supposed to wear it. Still, there is a handful of poskim that said, okay, but again, nobody said that the wig of today is okay. No one, not a single, not a single real posek ever said. Only the local rabbis say it's okay. The real poskim, whether it's Moshe Feinstein or even the Lubavitcher Rebbe, never said the three-foot-long wigs that people wear and market on all types of raffles, those are okay. No one ever said those are okay. Now, no one said it's okay to get a wig from India either that's coming from idolatry. So that's the problem. If you're talking about the debate of, of modest, not modest, there is something to rely on to wear a wig today, okay? But when you look at the other part of knowledge that I have that's more than most, is what I did research on more than most, and probably anybody, uh, is the fact that it's impossible for the wig that you're getting that's real hair, for it to be kosher, even if it's short, for it to be kosher, because that hair is coming from India. And once it's coming from India, it's coming from those temples, there is no way to kosher it. Because once something comes from idolatry, you're not allowed to benefit from it. You're not allowed to sell it, not to eat it, 
Now, do anything other than destroy it. So, when we did research, we reviewed UN reports, import exports. Uh, we we have people in India went to the temples. Uh, a lot of different things we did. Bottom line is, all real hair wigs are coming from India to the point where it's impossible for you to know whether the wig that you bought or not uh, came from anywhere else. Why? Because the majority, over 90% of the hair in the world comes from India. Not just because it's the best hair in the world, but also because it's the most abundant. Uh, because over there, it's part of their, part of their idolatry is to donate the hair to their, to their false gods. So therefore, they're giving it for free. That's the best price in the world. In other countries, that people say that, oh yeah, some people are, are selling their hair, fine. In Cambodia, in Russia, in other places where they're selling their hair, uh, yeah, how many, you know, it's, it's, it's <laughs> not as many people are going to sell their hair, number one. And two, you're not seeing a bunch of Russians bald. You're not seeing a bunch of Cambodians bald. But you are seeing millions and millions of, of Hindus bald. Because that is their, that's their religion. So it's even if somebody sells it, okay, so he sells it, the next time I'll be able to sell anything is 10 years from now. Because it takes a long time for it to grow, for it to be long. Point being is, is that it's part of their religion, it's the most abundant, it's also the most abundant people. They have over a billion people there. So even if you had all of Cambodia, everybody donated their hair or sold their hair, that's it. That means that the Cambodian market is dead for at least 10 years. Because nobody else is going to have long enough hair to donate, because that's all, that's all the people, that's it, finished. You have 20 people, 20 million people, 30 million people, finished. In India, you have 50 million people a year, because they have over a billion people. You understand what I'm saying? So by the time the 50 million people are able to donate their hair again, the other people also, you see there's a constant rotation, there's a huge amount. Point being is, is that it's the most abundant, it's also the best hair, as far as it's a, the quality of the hair is better than all the other nations and so on. It's, uh, it's in their genes. So with that being said, it's impossible for anybody to ever kosher the wig. Now, even if they say, you know, no, my hair came from Brazil. We checked Brazil. We sent people put to Brazil. We have hidden cameras over there, and we saw that there's a mafia. In Brazil, nobody knows where the hair is coming from that's being sold in Brazil because the mafia controls the hair in Brazil, and they won't tell you because they know that you're coming from the Jewish community, and if you knew that it's coming from India, you wouldn't buy it from them. And bottom line is, there is no other market. There's no Brazilians walking. I have some, I have some uh, 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 students in Brazil. They laugh at me when I tell them, you have people over there that sell their hair? I say, Brazilians will die before they sell their hair. They're so like into their body and, and so on. No chance in the world that you're ever going to find a single Brazilian ever sell their hair. So again, it's ludicrous for people to think that the, the hair that says, oh, made in Brazil actually comes from Brazil. It's a manufacturing issue where anytime... You sell something. Let's say you bought something from China. Okay, let's say you wanted to buy a toy. A toy a bat. Okay? Now, you want that bat to say made in Italy. But it was made in China. Now, you can't just change that. So what do you got to do? You got to take that bat, buy it, you bought it from China, transfer it to Italy. In Italy, put some small thing on it, even a small little piece of uh, plastic on it, that it becomes considered an innovation of some kind, an addition of some kind, then you can say it's made in Italy or wherever else you want so, the, once the hair comes from uh, India, it goes to uh, Brazil. In Brazil, they sew it together. They add a little string, and then they can say legally that it's made in Brazil. But it's not really made in Brazil. It can't be made in Brazil. There's no Brazilian selling their hair or donating it. 
The point being is, I looked into it a lot more than other people, and anyone that actually investigated it agreed, including some of the G'dolei Ado uh, that uh, agreed and wrote Psaq Halacha on it. Unfortunately, most of the world either doesn't know that this is the case, that the real hair wigs are coming from idolatry, or doesn't care. Um, so, with that being said, if you ask your average rabbi that never looked at the idolatry part of it that I mentioned, they could easily say it's, it's better to wear a wig than to not wear anything. But if you ask me, knowing all that information, no chance in the world that I could ever say it's okay because idolatry is worse than lack of modesty. Meaning, if she doesn't have a kisurosh, she's violating the Torah by not being modest. But if she has the wig on, she has idolatry on her head. Like it's, it's bringing Buddha statue into your house. It's, 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 it's benefiting from Yoshi. It's like going to a church. So you can't do that. So that's the thing. Both are bad, but one is worse than the other. One is worse than the other. So that's why I can't uh, ever say it's okay. And I don't think anyone that has the knowledge about it can ever say it's okay. But again, you know, it's, a, uh, uh, it's, it's unfortunately uh, an issue that... Uh, Probably also will only be resolved once Mashiach comes, but there's still many, many uh, tzaddikot that have watched our shurim, that have watched the videos, and arrived at their own conclusion that they can't continue to wear a uh, wig anymore. It was very hard for them to make the transition, uh, but they did it, and they're happier for it. And many women actually got miracles as a result of it. Babies, health, good marriage, so on. Yeah. Character traits? Yeah, so, I mean... Well, the, the more a person learns uh, Torah, especially when it comes to learning uh, things that... Musav, uh, which is to, to increase the Yirat the more likely a person is going to fear making sin a, uh, you know, a uh, excusable part of their life. Meaning, the, the, the biggest problem is when a person simply accepts that he's a sinner and he's just going to be like that. That's the Christian world. The Christian world, the worst part about it is the fact that they've accepted that sin is a part of their life and it's not going to change. And that's, in essence, what gives them the... the, uh, uh, the open-door policy to being vicious because they believe Yoshke is going to save them anyway. So that's why they give themselves whatever, uh, whatever they want. So, so long as a person does not accept the, the, uh, the wrong as this is acceptable, uh, even if they repeat it, they know, okay, it's wrong. I have to fix it. I didn't succeed in fixing it today. I'll try again tomorrow. And if you fail again tomorrow, you try again the next day. So that's really, in essence, the biggest thing is to never give up on fixing Fixing different character traits. It's a we learned in our series of uh, uh, Jewish Ashkafa on Sunday. Uh, that's what the Chazonish said in the Sefer and Munave Bitachon that the the, uh, the most important mida, good mida to have, is simply to be determined to fix everything. Once a person is determined to fix everything, he'll be able to do it and he will do it. On the other hand, the worst character trait is giving up. 
just accepting things as are. Such a person is going to be the worst person on earth. Even if he keeps Shabbat and he does good things, overall he'll, he'll violate everything else when opportunity knocks. So the biggest and most important thing is to keep pushing, to be persistent, to keep pushing, keep working on yourself. And there are, everybody knows that there are certain things that uh, they need to work on more than others. Uh, ultimately, it's, a, uh, it's important for a person to learn as much as possible. Learn as much Torah as possible because that Torah in its nature is going to soften the character more. Meaning that even if he's not learning specifically about anger, learning Torah will make him less angry. Even if he is not learning specifically about being more generous, learning Torah will make him naturally make him more generous because he'll care more about the creation. So that's the thing. So learning Torah is, is a critical thing and, and the more a person pushes themselves more and more, the, 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 more, uh, the, the better he's going to do. And uh, I think it's important for people to know that if you want to get anywhere special in your life, you have to push yourself. Uh, you can't think that, you know, that uh, you're going to get anywhere far if you're just going to do the basic minimum. You have to push yourself and push yourself. And as I said before, you know, it's, a, uh, it's not necessarily the stuff that uh, work and bathroom and the things you need to do in life. It's all that other time, which is the majority of the day usually, uh, is, is uh, things that is extra time that you can use to learn Torah. Uh, and uh, if people really analyze their time, they would find out that they can learn a lot more Torah than they actually are. So push yourself and succeed. Oh, anything else? Okay. Rabotai, I appreciate everybody learning with me. There is actually also, last thing, there's also new USBs. A couple of new USBs in the back. It's free. Since you guys came out here, soon we'll put them on the website too. Uh, the, uh, the, I think it's a Bitachon series and also Stump the Rabbi. Uh, so, and also a bunch of movies and a lot of other cool things. Baruch Adonai Le'olam. Amen ve'amen.